Hey, what's up, folks? Welcome to another week of the Live Life Progressive Show. This is Sincere Hogan. Got Mike Mall on the other side of the line. What's up, dude? I'm doing great, man. I can't wait to talk to our guest. He's an, he's an expert on so many things that I'm trying to improve upon. Yeah. So not only will I get a lot out of this episode, the listeners are going to love what he has will. to say as well. Yeah. 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 So we're going to get to him in a second. Before we introduce him, just want to say thank you to those of you that are using that coupon code LLA to get 10% off anything you see at my website, MikeMahler.com. We've got Carly Golightly, and Carly said that her <laughs> boyfriend got her addicted to the show. Okay. He introduced so Good job, there boyfriend. You, Good job. Yeah, exactly. So I think I think that's a trend we need to encourage. Every exactly, because everybody feels like this is such a wife. guy show, <laughs> and it's not. Per se. Well, I don't care. I don't care about that. I just want to improve our numbers. You know? oh. so, so if every guy who listens gets his wife or girlfriend to listen, bam, we're going to improve our numbers big time. <laughs> I don't care about trying to prove fem Nazis wrong or say, oh, no, oh we've, no, got, we've got women. <laughs> Somebody, hell, definitely yeah. not talking about them. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see. We got Joseph Wood. We got Alan Condon, Nathan White, Eric Anderson, Robert Tracy, Sandip Singh, James Hendershot. Stephen Costello and Garen Clark, they're all using that coupon code LLA to get 10% off some great products. Yeah, yeah. Garen's another guy. One of you just have to get Garen on the show. He's another guy who's putting up some amazing numbers, but not only just for his, you know, for his size and also for his age. He's really putting it out there for guys who like to use that excuse. Oh, you know, when you get my age, you know, you can't, you can't do all that stuff and you got to start, you know, you can hurt your back, blah, blah. Here's a guy that's reversing, like he's reversing the aging process, man. And like I've watched this guy the last few years. We met in like the kettlebell sport world, but you know, he's gone on to compete in powerlifting and, and things like that. And his numbers are very impressive. Definitely one of these days we definitely have to get Garen on there, man. And very impressed with your products as well. I mean, I know he's a fan, big time. So. Yeah, he's a great guy. He's been a regular customer for a while. And also as a bonus, after we finish talking to our guest today, stick around because I'm gonna t- I'm gonna add some clarity to this whole John Jones situation. He's for those of you that are UFC fans, real quick, he posted positive for two estrogen blockers as they're described in the media and no one has explained why he may have taken this combination how they could have ended up in tainted supplements so i'm going to cut through all that nonsense explain it very clearly so Wait, make sure somebody actually knows that. what they're talking about on the subject what <laughs> i'm not even an expert on this topic but i'm, I'm def- i definitely know more than anyone i've heard talk about it you know so i feel obligated to at least clarify a few things and then we can get someone like anthony roberts on Assuming we still care about this topic, exactly. you know, in a couple of weeks, which we probably won't. Right. All right. Without further ado, we've got Eric Cressy on the line today, top strength coach. He's written hundreds of articles, including places such as T Nation, Men's Fitness, you name it. He's been there. And not only is he an elite strength coach, he's extremely strong himself, which is a combination I always like seeing. You want to see someone who practices what he preaches, and he definitely does that. He yeah. weighed 165 and deadlifted 650 at a powerlifting event. He's also squatted 540, benched 400. So, I mean, all of his numbers are ridiculously impressive. In particular, I find his deadlift technique really engaging because it's exactly what I want my deadlift technique to look like. So we're going to talk about that and a bunch of other things. Eric, how are you doing today, man? I'm great. Thanks for having me, guys. Hey, man. Oh, pleasure. <laughs> Yeah, I want to talk to you about the deadlift in particular because anyone who's watched your clips on YouTube, it seems like it doesn't matter how heavy the weight is, you move it really fast. I mean, there's a clip of you moving 600 pounds for three reps, and each rep is lightning fast. There's no sticking point. You're not getting stuck below the knee or above the knee and then grinding it out. It's just in the pocket the whole time. Is that something you had to really train for? Did you do assistance exercises for that? 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, I've, I've been a big proponent of, of speed deadlifts actually for a long time. Um, and always been really, really responsive to doing a lot of work in kind of that 65 to 85% range. Um, you know, anywhere from one to three reps, but just making the bar speed really good. You know, sometimes pulling its bands, pulling its chains, but, um, it actually happened when I was first getting going. Uh, I was still lifting in the juniors. I was probably 23 and, um, I was lifting an APF meet at 165 and the American record, I think, was 578 and a half. And I'll never forget it. I, I look back on the video and like I set up to the bar, I got down and I, I mean, I could have written a dissertation while I was down, like getting ready at the bar <laughs> yeah. and I picked it up yeah. and, and no joke, it was, an eight, it was an 18 second lick. I, lift. I, I saw that I, clip. Yeah, I saw I've it got it place. up there and you can actually yeah. see like the head judge, like yelling at me to put it down and I wouldn't give up and all this. And I look back on it and I'm like, there's <laughs> no athleticism to that pull. Like, it <laughs> right. off. If you don't get a bar off the floor quickly, you're not going to finish the lift. So it was kind of like an aha moment for me where I'm like, I got to go and I got to train bar speed. If I'm going to make a lift, it's got to be fast off the floor. Um, And that's something that I just kind of rededicated myself to. And it was interesting. That was in that year I took. Uh, I mean, I, I pulled a world record, um, at 165 in the juniors, I think it was like 567 and a half at 165. And in that subsequent year, um, my, my pull went from like 567 all the way up to like 628. Um, you know, which time is a, a big improvement at that body weight and, you know, and, and that also being like my, my kind of my best lift anyway. So, um, it was definitely proof in the pudding that speed deadlifts were where it's at. And I've used them a lot for a long time thereafter. Yeah, in that clip, the first thing I noticed is that your setup, as you said, you're taking a long time. You grab the yeah. bar, you're down there forever. And I noticed in, a, in another training clip, you talk about how that's one of the big amateur mistakes yeah. that beginners make is they set up and they're down there for way too long. And there's no way the bar is going to come off fast the longer you stay down there. Yeah, and no, that you're. I mean, you're you're kind of screwing with your own mind. The longer you're down there, the yeah. more you have time to to think about other stuff. It's like get your head <laughs> right, dip, grip, and rip. Yeah, the more you have time to think about what you're exactly. attempting to do. Absolutely. If you, just, if you just dip and drive, as one of my coaches, Mark Phillippe, said, he goes, "You want to drop your hips and then drive that bar off immediately." Yeah, absolutely. The time between the two. And I've changed a lot of things. Like I had like a little bit of like a heel stomp when I first got going, you know. and. Um, I've gotten away from that. And just yeah, me too. Same me too. Here. I used to do that. <laughs> Simplified. You know, that's the name of the game. My uh, friend Peter Rouse is like, yeah, do that stomp right before you lift. And I started doing it, and I got a lot of other people to do it too. <laughs> yeah, right? I got it from Mike, and I was like, <laughs> and then I stopped doing it because I felt like it was a distraction. Yeah, I was like, this is. It was. I'm, it I'm getting myself all amped up, and then I just dissipated energy before I've even done <laughs> right. the lift. The timing is just the hardest part. You're yeah. you're just trying to get so much stuff synced up that you know there's there's more errors that you can make. So I when in doubt, it's like everything else in life, simplify. Right, and then also, you don't do the the bar roll. Have you ever experimented with that, where you roll the bar towards your shins and then the second it touches, you rip it off the ground? Yeah, I've I've seen guys that do that, and again, for me, it, it was one more kind of added piece that, that just made the movement a little bit more complex. You know, that seems to be really really popular with big lifters, yeah, big right, guys. Right, who, yeah. Um, and I think there's some of those guys that that have a little bit more weight to kind of counterbalance the load. So uh, maybe there are people that pull with lower hips and kind of sit back. But I mean, I'm. I'm like a buck 80 first thing in the morning right now. And I'm like long arms and long legs. And I just, I, I think maybe it's just that my build is a little bit different and, you know, taking away some of those moving parts has really helped me. Yeah. I'm with you on that one. Cause I have long arms as well. So for me to roll that thing, it's like, okay, why I'm still, again, you're just sitting there waiting for it to kind of get there. You know, you, exactly. so it gives you time to think about other stuff. Like, okay, dude, are you really going to lift and, this now? You know, it's like, yeah. 
you know, you got time to pump yourself out of it. Timing right too. Yeah, exactly. And think about the direction of the bar too. I mean, the bar is coming back towards you, so it's a it's a more horizontal force that's being applied towards you, and you've got to take that movement and transfer it into a vertical movement. My feeling has always been like you got to put force directly down into the ground to get a bar to come up. So I don't want anything shifting in a different direction. You got you got to make a perfect L, you know, for that to work for you. You know, absolutely. And, and so you got to be very precise. So good luck with that. <laughs> yeah, it can, it can work. There are guys that are doing great success. You know, and if people are willing to put in the time to, to learn everything, I always just try to keep things simple. Now, what do you talk, what do you think about a lot of these lifters? Like, I see so many that kind of go through this little pre-lifting ritual where they, I don't know, man, they're sticking their arms all out. And, you know, I, it's almost like they're doing sign language to people out in the crowd before they get ready to get started. And there's this huffing and puffing. And, you know, it's, to the average person, it may seem like theatrics. Like, does it really help them yeah. mentally get ready for the lift? Or is it just something they've seen some other people do who is, who quite strongly like, well, if I do it like so-and-so, I can do it as well. It just becomes this, I don't know, man, like a placebo effect. Like, does it think, really help by doing all that stuff? The stomping, you know, the hands it, are out. <laughs> it, it may. I mean, I think you just, you get some odd ducks that like to lift heavy things. <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, I've seen, I've seen guys put their heads through walls at meets trying to get fired up for, for lifts and, you know, guys that smart smelling salts and all that stuff. And, you know, maybe there's a time and a place like that for, for some people, but, um, you know, I used to do kind of like, I, I would like put my arms out in front of me just cause I felt like it kind of reminded me to, to get my chest up nice and tall and, yeah. you know, finish lifts cause I used to miss a lot at the top. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think for some people the, the cues can matter and, you know, individualization is obviously important in just about every athletic endeavor, but yeah, I think, I don't think it has to be elaborate rituals. You know, it's not like, uh, <laughs> you know, it's not something like simple, like don't step on the foul line. If you're a baseball player, a lot of times we have a lot more moving parts and you're talking about a, a situation there where you're, you're getting ready to lift a ton of, of big weights. So your head needs to be right in the right place. Right. I think it's either going to go or not, right? Like you're, <laughs> yeah. you're either trained to lift it or you're not. You can do all the visualization stuff. You can do the yeah. foot stomps. You can scream at the crowd. But if you don't have the training in place before all of that to ensure yeah. that you have the strength to move the bar, it's not going to go anywhere. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, the other thing that no one ever really talks about is that, you know, if you're talking about a purely powerlifting world, the deadlift is your third lift. Um, like I look back on my best meets and I mean, invariably you feel like crap by the time deadlifting comes around, your low back's tight. It's been a long day. You're probably hungry. You've probably had 15 grams of caffeine or something like that. (laughs) You've you've literally just destroyed your body. And so the last thing you want to do is (laughs) prancing around and doing all this stuff. Like, you know, your first lift keeps you in the meat, your second lift, you hopefully hit your total PR and maybe a, you know, a a specific lift PR. And then for third, you, maybe you go for broke and try something that you don't have any business lifting. So, um, yeah, just, I, for me, simplicity is the name of the game. I think in the gym, there might be an embarrassment motivator, meaning you do this foot stomp, you do these three (laughs) tricks and now everyone in the gym is looking at you. It's true. (laughs) (laughs) The last thing you want to do is miss the lift after all of that. Like the bar doesn't budge an inch. And the funny thing about it is like, you, you look at like some of the best lifters out there and you know, the guy, that have been at this for a really long time and like they don't really care what's going on like i mean I, I'll, I'll be joking around with people between sets and you know you just kind of flip the switch and turn on but it doesn't matter if like the, the stereo stops and you're between songs and you're dead the thing you just do it anyway <laughs> it's like right. boys the man comes on it's like oh no 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 i gotta wait for the tackle to come back <laughs> <laughs> like you're gonna hit that lift whether you listen to the end of the road or not man like just go ahead and do it <laughs> that's right that's right it's like oh i didn't have the right song in that's what i just did <laughs> that's exactly my vibe man start coming up with the excuses exactly Now, to get more explosive off of the floor, have you found deficit deadlifts to be useful? Uh, I 
I'm on the fence about it. Um, yeah. I think the the yeah. issue with deadlifts from a deficit is that most people just move horribly, and you know oh, you absolutely. ask them to, to do it from a deficit, and you're asking them to to take on an extra couple of inches of range of motion that can really put them in a tough situation. Um, particularly if you're talking about like conventional <laughs> deadlifts, which are already you know pushing the limits of somebody's um, you know mobility as it is. It's a little bit different. It's coming from a sumo pull. Um, you know, so I think on that end, it's it's probably not a great fit for a lot of lifters. That said, if you're talking about maybe pulling from a you know a half inch to a three quarter inch deficit you're someone who moves particularly well um you're using it sparingly you know you're cycling it in and out of your your training yeah there can be a place for it so i think it really depends on the lifter and their movement quality um i I can say i very rarely would use it myself um you know and one thing you can do is maybe if you're going to pull from a deficit um you know add some accommodating resistance pull against chains pull against bands Mm. so maybe the load is a little bit lighter when you're at the deficit it makes it easier to get into your position and stay true to your form and then the load picks up as you start to stand up so it kind of accommodates that strength curve a little bit better right yeah i've done some experiments with four four inch deficit and i found the same thing i mean it felt like a cool lift it feels more like a squat than a deadlift at times but when i went back to the conventional deadlift i felt really out of the pocket yeah I, i felt the groove was off and i was actually weaker i definitely wasn't stronger yeah, there's a there's a difference between the two of them. You tend to you tend to see guys drop their hips a little bit too low, and yeah. they have a hard time getting the bar around their knees. So it kind of becomes a little bit more of a squat. Exactly. Um, you know what I'd probably rather see from people is you know I love snatch grip deadlifts um, from a you know from without the deficit. Like if you oh, can okay. pull a clean lift from a snatch grip from the floor. Um, you know that's a really really good test of whether you understand like the, the the hip and torso alignment. Like really your angle should be very very comparable. I feel like to what your conventional deadlift is. Um, you know, you just challenge yourself a little bit different, a little bit heavier on the upper back. So um, I still use a fair amount of snatch grips. I'll, I'll rotate, rotate those in for probably two or three months out of the year and, and seem to do really well with them. Yeah, yeah I can see how those kind of, can kind of give you more of an indicator also like yeah. what you're doing wrong because yeah. in that snatch grip, you can really kind of see when you're pulling a little bit more with your right, like for a lot of right-handed people, I will see them pulling way more on that right side and yeah. overcompensating with that. And you see that left side dip a little bit. So yeah. I think you can really start seeing those things and correct those things before you go back to a conventional deadlift, which you probably Absolutely. wouldn't even notice that much. And I'll use usually overhand on both hands and, and use straps on those, which I think is also a good opportunity to kind of get away from just using the alternate grip year round where right. now you are putting yourself in a little bit of risk on that underhand side. So um, I definitely like the idea of just, you know, it's, it's variety. That's what our body craves. It's what we want on a daily basis. So even in the powerlifting world, I think it's important to find that. Yeah, and I think it's smart variety what you're talking about where it's it's still the same groove that you're going to use when you do a regular deadlift while something such as a 4-inch deficit it's it's so far away that it's a completely different exercise. Absolutely. It doesn't have the same carryover. I've always found that whatever I'm trying to improve it has to be precise. So if I want to improve my regular deadlift, I have to do that. If I focus on 4-inch deficit and then try to come back, I'm out of the pocket. If I even do partial deadlift, let's say the bar just below the knees, and I get really strong on those, and then I go back to the regular deadlift, well, now I'm slow off the floor. Yeah. I think the longer I've been at this, the more and more I realize that, that specificity from an exercise selection standpoint really, really matters. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, and, and you have to be careful with that because then you have every guy in, on the planet thinking they need to go on like a spot, squat specialization program and they run it for, for you know, three months straight and all of a sudden their knees yeah. hurt and they've got a herniated disc in their back. But, um, you know, I, I look back on my powerlifting career and I, I'm very much built to deadlift. I'm long arms, long legs, short no torso. Doubt. So yeah. I've always struggled a lot more with my squat 
my bench. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I was a a big time kind of West side disciple, um, you know, especially back in like, you know, 2003 to 2007 when I was really active in the powerlifting scene. And, um, you know, one of the big things they always pushed was, you know, good mornings. You know, if you train your good mornings hard, it's going to help your squat. It's going to help your deadlift. And, uh, you know, I got to the point where I had a better good morning than I did a squat. Um, I was, I was taking like mid 500 good mornings and I, I was squatting like 540 in a suit. Um, and it made no sense to me. And, and yeah. really what it came down to is, you know, specificity mattered. I, the lifts that I was kind of predisposed to being really good at deadlifts, they came along for the ride no matter what. I mean, I could do single leg work. I could deadlift. I could squat. I could good morning. And my deadlift was usually going to come along as long as I trained it a little bit. Right. If I wanted my squat to get better, I need to squat a lot. I need to squat regularly um, i need to hone in my technique and and that's the stuff that brought along my, my squat and my bench over the course of time is really really training it yeah do you find that there's more transfer of squat to deadlift and the other way around um you know that's a great question i would say yes um is a good rule yeah. of thumb uh just because you see so many guys that that just train the squat really really hard and their deadlift kind of seems to keep up you'll see some really big time deadlifters who have what might be considered like a mediocre squat. Um, yeah. Like I know for me personally, like I, I'd always during my powerlifting career and I'm, I'm kind of semi-retired now. Um, you know, I'd always lifted in, in equipped federations just because I trained at, at gyms where guys were using squat scoots and bench shirts and things like that. And, um, you know, in hindsight, I wish I hadn't, I, I, I get a lot more excited about raw lifting. So right. back in like, uh, the fall of 2012, I was feeling a little banged up one week, so I decided, hey, I'm just going to take three days off and just kind of recharge and woke up one Wednesday morning feeling really good. I'm like, you know what? I'm going to, I'm going to do a mock meet today and see how it goes. And then I came in and um, I squatted. Uh, I was waiting at 180 first thing in the morning, squatted 455, uh, benched 350, and deadlifted 635. So like that's an elite total raw, and I did it in an hour and a half. But I think that what you look at is the numbers. Like I pulled 635 and, and on, only squatted 455. So um, you know you can be a, a, a very successful deadlifter, and you can have a squat that's not necessarily on par with it. So I, I definitely think squat, <laughs> Yeah, I, I know that personally. Not that yeah. I'm the best deadlifter in the world, but I'm a yeah. way better deadlifter than I am a squatter. That's <laughs> Damn yeah, sure. the you leverages know, are just different. Yeah, I find similar to your body type, the deadlift comes relatively easily. It's, not, it's definitely not something that I'm piling on the weight every week or month, but it's I just feel way more comfortable with it. While the squat is, I actually enjoy squatting, but it's it's a real struggle to add weight to that. It takes a lot of time. Oh, absolutely. And the other thing too is nobody really talks about the the squat and the bench are going to be dramatically impacted by your body weight. If right. I put yeah. on, if yes. I put on yes. pounds, ask you. Yeah. If I put on 10 pounds, my squat goes up by 50 or 60 pounds. My Absolutely. bench goes up 30 or 40. My deadlift stays probably exactly the same. It's it's completely different. And honestly, you see a lot of guys who, like when they squat, they can bounce their belly off their thighs. Yeah, right. <laughs> nice down, like shortens range on the bar. Yeah. Like I'm jealous yeah. of those guys. One day a week, I wish I had a huge belly. Huge <laughs> yeah, belly and short arms, man. Just stick, a, yeah. stick a pillow under your shirt. <laughs> those beats. Yeah, yeah but I mean, so I could cool. be two thirty, and my my deadlift probably wouldn't go up. If anything, right. my my belly might get in the way and mess me up and make me pull sumo. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say, I was like, if you put on too much weight, it might actually have a deleterious effect on your deadlift. Yeah. But, but you're absolutely right. Bench press, squat, and overhead press dramatically yeah. increases with any weight increase. I remember I, I gained about 10 pounds and I went back to overhead kettlebell pressing and something that was heavy for me previously just was just flying overhead. Yeah, it's just it's just having a larger base of support underneath where your your, um, your center of mass is. Yeah, I mean, which helps when you have long arms, especially overhead pressing. You're just like, God, <laughs> if you're a little thinner with that, it's just it feels like it's going to take forever to get that up. So it helps yeah, 
There are some awesome. people, though, that are really impressive with the overhead pressing that are lightweight, and it's very rare. Yeah. But Ken Leisner, right, he weighed yeah. 165, and there was a clip of him years ago overhead pressing with great technique, not push press, military press, 255 for four reps. And yeah. none of the reps were a struggle. And, and, it, was, and you know, it was hard to believe. Even you were watching, you're like, I can't believe he's doing it so easily. You get, and you get what you train, you know, whatever yeah. guys that's work. That's right. Bruce, I remember I, back in like the summer of uh, 2006, I think it was, I was just like, I'm all right, I'm, I'm gaining weight. These are going to help my powerlifting numbers. I got to get after it. And I, I got up to 202 at like five foot eight. Yeah. And man, those last 10 pounds, like they all went to my face. Uh, <laughs> I, I think I remember. I, I, I looked like a, I looked like if you, I looked like an Ewok that had just shaved. Like it looks like, like an older guy who hangs out one of those Boston bars. I, know, I got up. Like this is awful. Yeah, you had a really red face, I think, if this I recall doing, correctly. Yeah, this isn't doing anything for my sparring. <laughs> I'm chilling my my appeal to the opposite sex. <laughs> yeah, no doubt, no doubt. Now, what about? For increasing explosive power, what about Olympic lifting, such as a power clean? You think that would carry over, or is it a little bit too different? I think there's definitely a place for it. Um, I think where it becomes challenging, if you're talking about a deadlift, is the first pull of an Olympic lift is dramatically different than the first pull of a deadlift. Right. Um, you know, your your initial pull from the floor in an Olympic lift is all about setting up the positioning um, for that second pull. You never see an elite Olympic lifter miss a lift on the first pull. Mm-hmm. You know, he misses it on either the catch or you know, obviously transitioning from the clean to the jerk aspect of it. Right. So, um, no, the hips tend to be higher on a uh, on a, a you know kind of a, a powerlifting style deadlift, um, and you know, whereas they're a lot lower on the Olympic lifting style thing. Not only that, you know, the Olympic lift you're setting up, you know. A, a, a squat catch basically so a lot of those guys pull in shoes that have bigger heel lifts whereas in a deadlift like i want to be able to drive my heels to the floor i want to be as contacted to the ground as i can i, I actually pull barefoot just a pair of socks um, yeah. more often and yeah. i feel like if you throw me into a pair of you know shoes with a pretty good heel lift um it's going to take me out of that pattern and shift me forward and no i'm not doubt. i'm not going to pull 600 with quads I'll, I'll pull it with hamstrings and glutes but right um, right so for me they're totally different skills that said, you know, you could do, certainly work some high poles, things like that in that might help you to help uh, work on your finish of each pole, things like that. But I don't see them as like a, a, a perfect transfer at all. Yeah. What about glute ham raises coming back to your last point since that's such a great posterior chain builder? Yeah. I, I use them every single week. Yeah, um, me too. I probably, probably have since 2003, and you know, I, I don't know anything different. But I, I feel like they're also a great way to keep some some uh, some size on your hamstrings and your glutes. And I, I think even be, beyond that, like it's it's a lot more spine friendly. Like you can only yeah. do so much squatting and deadlift, and and you want to still train that posterior chain to get some carryover. Um, you know, and you're a little more functional than leg curls, things like that. You know, you do some single leg stuff and throw those in, you're in a pretty good spot. For transfer to sprinting, I found a pretty nice effect. Just yeah, being able to fly out of the gate. Yeah, I worry a little bit about guys using them a lot in season. Guys just seem to, you know, be at a little bit higher risk of a hamstrings issue when they're uh, when they're doing a lot of that stuff. But off season, absolutely. And if you're talking about, you know, you know, guys who are uh, who are powerlifters, I mean, rolling nonstop throughout the year. Yeah, absolutely. Now, what about a lifting belt? Now, do you wear a belt for safety or as a performance enhancer or both? 
You know, it's a great question. I think it probably goes both places. The, the research certainly isn't in support of it being, you know, wildly effective for creating safety. And you know, yeah. Stuart McGill's published some stuff about that. I think certainly, you know, every power lifter lifts it because we can get more loading out of it. What I can tell you is when I do a high volume program, um, you know, and, and I may do a lot of volume, um, you know, of deadlifting or squatting, like your back is eventually going to be a little bit of a limiting factor for you. So, yeah. you know, like I had a recent program that was something like eight sets of three at like 76% after, you know, doing a high volume of work on my first exercise of the day. And I, I mean, I put it on for the last three or four sets, even though it was only 76%, just because my back was starting to get a little cranky and I wanted to kind of get through the session, get my volume in and not risk it. So yeah. I think there's a place for both. I know it, it kind of is probably more anecdotal observation than what the research certainly supports. But, um, you know, what I think you also have to look at is like the, uh, you know, I remember Mike Boyle talking about it from a liability standpoint. You never want to be that guy that tells a client, you know, don't put a belt on because what happens if they don't put it on and they get hurt and they say, you know, the belt would have helped me. So, you know, <laughs> someone that's, that's yeah. demanding to use a belt, they can use it, but right. the average lifter, they probably don't need it. Um, you know, especially yeah, I, mean, I, I see guys at the gym, they're about to do 225 on the deadlift and they're, like, yeah. they're, they're getting their trainer, training partner to make the yeah. belt as tight Super as possible. Tight. Like, oh, guys, guys, you're not ready for that yet, man. Relax. <laughs> You'll see guys on like the pec deck use in their weight belts <laughs> you don't you, you really don't need it for that stuff that's where it becomes a crush that's just right, they're being lazy and they don't want to take it off so i mean when i when i pull you know honestly like um you know on my warm-ups i'm not touching a belt until i get to like 545 okay um everything underneath that that is and then then it's for me it's just like all right i just want to make sure i groove this before i start getting to the big boy weights have you tried maxing out or close to it without a belt Oh, yeah, I mean, I've pulled over six, um, you know, multiple times without a belt and not really had a problem with it. But, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't know what I actually get out of for my belt. I, I like training without a belt as a little bit of a, a uh, almost like a training implementation, meaning that right. you train beltless for a while and you go back to using a belt, you feel like you really get a lot out of it. Um, similar to like, uh, you know, if you pull the really, really stiff bar and then you go back to a, a little bit more of a deadlifting bar that has a little more whip to it, maybe mm. better curling. Yeah. You'll see stuff like that that can really make a big difference. So yeah, getting away from a belt for a while. Greg Robbins is one of my staff members who does that a lot with, with great outcomes. So, um, I think there's definitely a place for it. Yeah. Because it could, it can become a crutch if you use yeah. it a hundred percent of the time. Absolutely. Um, you know, and, and the other thing too is like, I mean, it depends on how much you travel and stuff, but like if you're going across the country to do something, the last thing you want to do is have to li- bring a crap load of lifting gear with you. So, <laughs> right, right. Yeah. I, I, I don't think you should become relying on a belt at all. Now you use a close stance and close grip you know, yep. the placement of your hands. I use a very similar style to what you use. Yeah. What about sumo? Have you ever experimented with that? Yeah. Uh, you know, it's funny. I was never a really big sumo puller aside from just like rotating in. And, um, just one training cycle, I, I kind of incorporated it as a little bit more of a main effort. And my sumo came along really, really fast. I, I actually pulled like, I think 615 or 620 sumo. Um, so it came around really well. And I think probably the secret for me, I don't pull ultra wide. Um, I tend to put kind of like a, you know, some people will call it like a, a duck stance or something like that. But right, right. I'm probably maybe one and a half times hip width where you see other guys that are really out there, like two, two and half times their hip width so um i don't get ultra wide but um i feel like that also has maybe gives me a little bit better carryover in my squat when i'm not too wide yeah yeah i used to use a wider stand not too wide but a little bit wider than what i use now and then i grip the bar a little bit wider and i think a mutual friend of ours jack reap he saw a clip of me on mine and he recommended i take a stance more like yours and initially it was uncomfortable but after a couple of weeks i was lifting more than ever and i still use yeah. it now so it really makes a big difference finding that optimal groove for your body type 
Yeah, there are a lot of people that pull really, really wide. And I, I mean, I don't have any like research to support this other than what I've heard. That's just, it's very aggressive on your hips. Um, especially if you have guys who are competing and using like, uh, you know, a, a box squat mentality. If you're box squatting and you're pulling sumo, your hips are not going to be very happy with you on a pretty regular basis. So, um, I think you just need to save your bullets a little bit on the sumo and use them here and there, but not make it a, you know, a, a nonstop throughout the year unless that's your really competitive lift. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Made me think of a funny story about, you know, you know, Ellen Stein, right? She's a power lifter. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. She's a really cool lady. She's a funny yeah. lady, good sense of humor, but she was, she used to come to a lot of my courses and, yeah, I was telling her to take a closer stance on double swings, and that worked out. And then she was talking about deadlifting, and I was like, "Yeah, you know, try keeping your legs closer together more often." You know, <laughs> she's like, "Oh, what are you trying to say? I spread my legs too often?" I was like, "Yeah, that's what I've heard, Ellen." You know, <laughs> those are the rumors out there. You know? But it's funny because that was—I mean, I wouldn't make a joke like that to her, even though I know her really well. Because I mean, obviously you don't want to offend somebody in your course, but the fact that she responded immediately with that is what cracked me up. I was like, "You're a fun person to work with, man." She's feisty. I've, I've, I've had a chance to work with Alan a little bit back in the day too. She's a fun one. Yeah, she's really strong too. Yeah, yeah I think she's probably in her. She may be. She's definitely past her fifties when she was competing a lot. I'm not sure what she's doing now, but she was really strong. Oh, absolutely. Let's talk about the squat a little bit because. I've, uh, do you use a powerlifting squat style, meaning where you try to sit back into a chair behind you? Uh, not as much as I used to. I okay. think that was something that really was born out of like guys using squat suits. Right. Um, certainly uh, back when I was competing in those, and I was honestly never a good uh, equipped lifter. Like I, I was terrible. I hated getting my squats. That was a pain in the butt, and I, I never <laughs> felt like I went to a meet and was like really displayed my strength because I was never good enough in my squat suits. Um, as I shifted to more of a raw setup, um, it definitely became a little bit less back, 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 and you know, squat down instead of just back. So that for me was um, was definitely a change that came about as I got to a more raw lifting setup. You know, raw lifters just have to use a little bit more quads, so um, that right. torso might be a little bit more upright. I still turn most of my my heaviest squats into good mornings just because of the way I'm built. But okay, um, but yeah, I, I have uh, I have gotten away from being just. You know, just super back, back, no, I back. find I go straight down, and then as I get closer to that parallel point, then I start shifting back a little bit more yep. as opposed Absolutely. to pushing the, the glutes out as far as possible to initiate yep. the motion. Yeah, and usually when you're when you're pushing back like that, really what you're doing is you're hyperextending your lumbar spine. You're, right. you're, mm-hmm. right. What you're effectively doing is you're giving up your, your core control because you're, you're closing things down in the back, and then you're flaring up in the front. And what happens when you flare up in the front? You, you take your rectus abdominis, and you just lengthen it. It's not really in a good position to right. to give you core control to support that load so um it's it's as as the answer with everything it's you know don't go too far in any direction right so right what's your opinion on the high bar versus the low bar on the squats here um you know put it this way I, i'm wired for a low bar setup um, yeah same here me, I've, yeah. I've been doing it so long that going to a high bar just doesn't feel right um you know so there are guys that do great with it but i don't, I don't think you're ever going to see a lot of really 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 strong guys who are who are squatting with a high bar setup um unless they have you know fantastic mobility to really get their hands in close and all that so right. i think most of the strongest people i see are tend to be you know wider grip lower bar setups hmm. how low do you go because i've seen people who look it looks like they have the bar in the middle of their back yeah. Um, I'm not, I'm not that low by any means. Um, you know, I, I, I to be honest, I probably even forget what high bar actually feels like cause I haven't really done yeah. it for yeah. so long, but no, I think that the lower you go, the more you're, you're putting your shoulders in a really, really tough spot and you're, you're actually giving up that shelf that you need to create. So it's about finding that happy medium for sure between the two. 
Yeah, I find just below the traps. Yeah. Yep. It feels perfect. And yeah, that actually, it allows me to stay a little bit more upright in the descent. Yeah, I feel more like I'm at no longer a low bar, more like a mid bar, if anything. Right, yeah. right. You know, because otherwise, it seems like the lower you go, the more you end up becoming like, you know, a stripper coming back up. You know, you got to sit there and just come up super high ass first. You know, so you just like head down, ass up the whole time. You know, feel like a loop dancer. So it's funny. <laughs> so. I, I can't even describe where I hold the bar. I could like actually show you. We, yeah. I use the giant, I use the giant camera bar a lot um, just because it's more shoulder friendly and I've got kind of a history of some shoulder stuff that doesn't really love back squatting. The giant camera bar, like the knurling is just unforgiving. Like it destroys your upper back. So I have like a permanent like scab on both, <laughs> both sides of my upper back where I can be like, all right, this is where I, I hold the bar. <laughs> That's a good question with the shoulders. What's do you find? Do you do rotator cuff exercises, shoulder stability drills? Yeah, I have to because um, yeah. beyond just what I do on the lifting side of things, um, I mean, I've got a gruesome MRI. I've got a 15 millimeter retracted rotator cuff tear. I've got a slap mm. tear. Um, I've got a cartilage defect in my humeral head, but kind of the whole nine yards. And I'm I'm definitely a, a I was supposed to have surgery in 2003 and I've been kicking the can down the road. But um, on top of that, uh, I'm really involved in the baseball population. So I'm right. literally yeah. on a on a weekly basis actually playing a lot of catch, long tossing, you name it, catching bullpens. So um, I need to stay on top of doing a lot of cuff stuff. Um, for me, that's 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 non-negotiable. Um, really, the, the only thing I can't do is back squat really heavy. Um, that's the stuff that flares my shoulder up like crazy. That that really externally rotated position, yeah. um, significant load on it. Um, one of the things I have been trying a little bit more is using the Duffalo bar, um, Chris Duffin's um, mm-hmm. bar that from Spooky Strength and playing around with that a little bit more. Um, I need to kind of have like a wide setup and so far so good. I haven't really pushed it like crazy. Um, I took it up to like 375 for a few reps on Sunday just to see how it felt, but that's still a, a little bit of a work in progress. Cause I, yeah. I miss, I really miss back squatting. I enjoy it a lot, right. um, but I use the safety squat bar, the giant camera bar, front squat, stuff like that a lot more now, just because it's not worth risking it with me, you know, basically being retired from powerlifting. Right. Yeah. The safety squat bar is cool. It feels awkward, at least the yeah. first couple times you use it. You feel like it's going to flip right off yep. your back. <laughs> There's definitely an adjustment period. It gets a ton of use at our facility with our, our pro baseball guys. and um, I'm, a, I'm a huge fan. We do a lot of stuff beyond just squatting with it. Like We'll do single leg work with it, split squats, right. um, forward and reverse lunges, using the slide board, using you know non-slide board, all kinds of stuff. So very, very uh, good way to – you know, I, I think it's like the whole concept of adding variety, but not necessarily changing things. You can you can do yeah. a lot of great yeah. stuff if you have a few different specialty bars under your your roof. Absolutely. How did this whole path into baseball strength training happen for you? It was honestly almost completely by accident. Um, I, I did my grad degree at the University of Connecticut from 2003 to 2005, and while I was there, I actually worked mostly with with basketball and soccer. Um, and I always thought that you know the route I would wind up going was uh, was working in college basketball, strength and conditioning. And it just so happened that um, you know when I finished up, I wound up going to the private sector, you know, kind of wanting to to work in that realm a little bit before I did anything else. And um, you know, when I first started working in the private sector, some of the first guys I started working with were, were baseball players. Um, and by that time, I had already had a bunch shoulder issues myself and you know i realized that it was you know a population i could kind of relate to because of those shoulder issues and it was a something i was passionate learning about but at the same time i realized that it was a, a very underserved population you know either they were the guys that got handed the the football program or they got handed the rehab program and you know they they didn't ever get anything in the middle that you know kind of took into account the unique needs of their sport and you know the functional demands of baseball but at the same time realized that hey we can push these guys hard if we make sure our exercise selection is is appropriate and we're we're challenged with the right time 
of years. So um, it became a, a little niche for us. And some of those high school guys became college guys. College guys became pro guys. Pro guys had teammates and agents and organizations that led to referrals and stuff. So, you know, here we are basically, you know, 10 plus years later. And we, we train guys from all 30 major league organizations. And, um, you know, it's, it's really uh, blown up. And, you know, really what it comes down to, I always tell people, if you want to build a successful business, just solve a problem. Right. And we found a problem and that's what we did. Yeah. I always say if you want to make a lot of money, just make a product or service that feeds on people's laziness. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Because I tell you, you you can't go to Whole Foods without seeing the parking sharks in the first several spots waiting forever so they don't have to walk an extra 10 feet into what's supposedly a health food supermarket. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, absolute truth. Um, You know, that's that's the nature of it. And it, um, you know, it's it's frustrating because when you see those guys that are – that are based on just being lazy. Uh, it's it's leaving a lot of athletes out in the cold. That that frustrates me a lot. Is that you know we have a lot of guys who are like yeah I'm a baseball specific strength coach. So what do they do? They change barbell bench press to dumbbell bench press and think they're done. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's the honest yeah. to god truth. And there's, yeah. there's there's a whole lot more to it. And, and we're talking about right. billions of dollars wasted on arm injuries in professional collegiate and high school baseball. And you know we've really worked hard to try to change that. But I feel for the guys that don't get the care that they deserve because they really want to do right. They want to work hard, but they just need the direction. Yeah, you think about how many "quote unquote" strength training programs for baseball actually caused injuries, yeah. as opposed to being preventive, <laughs> which is what a good strength and conditioning program should be. That's what it's about, and that's where you, know, you have to, you know, you have to temper expectations sometimes. Sometimes guys are just so dead set on getting strong, you have to realize, you know, hey, let's let's take a step back. We'll do that, but you got to do this as well to make sure that you can make use of that strength in the right context. So it's about uh, finding a middle ground, as with everything in, in the fitness world. Well, what did you find were some of the problems with strength and conditioning for baseball when you first entered in, into this domain? You know, I think you had you had two scenarios. One, there was there was literally no level of individualization. It was just squat, bench, clean, and, you know, keep your fingers crossed and hope things work out well. Yeah. But I think we also had a scenario of guys being excessively pampered, um, you know, and that's that's just as much of a problem as, you know, here's your, here's your band program, do some wrist curls, we'll take care of your shoulder and elbow with that. But, you know, realizes that, hey, you know, the rest of your body, if it moves the way that it should, can take a lot of stress off your arm as well. So, um, you know, I think uh, we really learned how to figure out a balance between those two things is that, hey, you can borrow from the rehab worlds you can borrow from the high performance world and you know create a philosophy that's somewhere in the middle that that caters to guys individual needs so you know above all else we were very very big on individualization um you'll see crazy stuff in in baseball players you'll see stuff that's totally abnormal in the context of the general population um you'll see stuff that that just that that you know you just don't see anywhere else so um that's why it's been something that's really good for us and you know in a in, a, in an environment where individualization is something we prioritize so heavily, I feel like you have a lot of athletes that, you know, when they come in here, they, they feel like someone's listening to them and, you know, treating them as an individual for their first time in their career. Yeah, I think the specificity, you hit the nail on the head. And you're finding that with some of the newer sports, such as MMA, they've had similar problems there where they've taken traditional models and just applied it there in a generic fashion. And yeah. it's, it's either counterproductive or not useful at all. And then sometimes yeah. – People just have have a big decline in performance, yeah. and there's been a, there's one strength coach Nick Curzon who has some really innovative methods, and he worked with the Marinovich the Marinovich brothers. Mm-hmm. So he's really focused on creating speed that matches the sport, and he yeah. worked with Rafael Dos Anjos, who up until this bad loss recently was the champion, <clears throat> but he always wanted to make this guy move faster and be the first one to do anything, first one to throw a punch, first one to take down yeah. his opponent. 
And it worked really well when he did win the championship. But he said that with a lot of people, they're doing too much weight training without the mobility, without the explosive yeah. work, and it's making them tighter so that they're not stronger in the ways they need to be in the actual sport. Yeah, you've got to be able to use what you train. Um, right. And I think that's right. a big thing. I think, you know, at the end of the day, it really comes down to if, if you look at any program, right, if, you're, if one of us, the three of us writes a program, we should be able to take an, a casual observer to exercise physiology. We should be able to literally explain to them exactly why everything that we put in that program is there, right? Mm-hmm. You know, why is there this exercise? Oh, it's because it's going to work on thoracic mobility, and that's important for pitchers. And why is it this one? Oh, it's, it's working on single leg strength, and that's something that you really need to pitch at a high level. Like, and, and I think what you find is that there are a lot of people that literally can't do that. Instead, what yeah. they say, well, this is what we've always done. Well, why are you running your pitchers into the ground? Um, you know, is, is that functionally performing, improving their performance in any way possible? And the answer is no. And, but the point is nobody's, uh, in many cases asked that hard question, you know, um, you know, it's kind of like watching these MMA fighters, you know, training with altitude masks and things like that. <laughs> right, right, yeah, you know, right. We know it's brutal. It's ineffective. It's a waste of money. And all it is, is it's, you know, it's for show. Um, but nobody has, has challenged them to, to, you know, to basically justify why they're including it. Um, and I think that's what we I, I think sometimes we make the mistake of doing stuff because visually, we like the way it looks visually. Yeah, right? it makes so it look like, like okay, when the UFC camera crew comes over to the gym, like, hey, can you put that mask on? <laughs> you know, it'll look good for this behind the scenes. <clears throat> episode, you know? Are you trained to be suffocated by the mob? Like they're going to throw a bag over your head or something like that? What are you training for? <laughs> It's the absolute truth. And I mean, that stuff frustrates me. But like even in baseball, like we have like agents that, you know, that refer people to us and represent some of our our guys who are incredibly well-intentioned and great people. And they'll send like care packages to their players. And, you know, they might include some bands and some, you know, compressive arm sleeves and some like, you know, trail mix for road trips and things like that. And then they throw an altitude mask in there. I'm like, good Lord, just keep that out. And this, you're going to save this kid hundreds of dollars worth of manual therapy on his, his scalenes and, you know, the other accessory muscles of inhalation that are going to get overworked because he's wearing it. So, um, you know, is, people that just, big, is that the big problem with the mask? You're just working, you're overworking I, things. I, I think that's part of, I mean, first off, I, I think we realize that the, the metabolic benefits probably aren't as great as we, uh, as people you know, believe where when you go to altitude, you're not, you're not, uh, fundamentally tr- resisting inhalation. What you're doing is you're you're creating adaptations at the the level of the lungs that physiologically are allowing you to to make make better use of oxygen. Right. Whereas when you have an altitude mask, all you're doing is you're resisting inflow of air. So you're you're effectively overtraining muscles like scalenes, pec minor, lat. Uh, subclavius, these muscles of inhalation that are already overworked and, and incredibly hypertonic in, in the classic postural adaptation. So I'd argue that you're making posture worse by throwing people into one of those masks. So, I mean, that's a, a, a crazy rant. It's obviously theoretical, but it's yeah. just, I, I don't see any rationale for it. You're, you're decreasing work like volume too. You're not getting as, as much quality work and you're not getting the metabolic benefits according to research. So it's just, Maybe not worth it. <laughs> I think sometimes people tinker too much with stuff, right? It's like, yeah. you, have to, you have to do a certain amount of tinkering to improve. But if you take that needle a little bit too far, now it starts taking away from the <laughs> overall paradigm. Yeah, I agree with you 100%. Um, you get you distracted know, in complexity. Yeah, yeah, you, yeah and, to... and you know what? And I think 
tinkering is one thing. I think overhauling is another. We've all right. you know, had that buddy who goes to like a new seminar and you, they come back and Monday morning, literally they've thrown 75% of their philosophy out. They go from being an Olympic lifting guy to a, you know, a high-intensity machine-based training guy. Um, you know, my feeling is if I go to an event <laughs> like that, I want to pick up a couple exercises. If an event overhauls my philosophy by 1%, that's, that's a tinker and I'm, I'm thrilled. Right. That's, that's been a great return on investment. But very rarely do you have that. Like, you know, yeah. I, went to, I went to the Posture Restoration Institute events. Those ones, you know, shifted probably two to three percent of our population or our philosophy, I should say. And yeah. that was probably the best investment I could have possibly made. It was it was a game changer for us. But the longer you've been in this industry, the more you realize you just you do a subtle tinker when you pick up new things, but you never overhaul. Right. Yeah. If you have a complete overhaul. Then obviously, you know, whatever you were rolling with before was obviously very much flawed. <laughs> you <know>? Yeah. <laughs> I'm always looking – I don't mind complexity if it improves the basic moves, right? So I right. like looking at things that are going to improve what I like to do. But when someone says you need to replace all of those things because I'm doing the basic basic movements that we all know work. So you yeah. don't need to overhaul that stuff. Just give me some ideas or some moves, some techniques that are going to improve these things. Absolutely. That's the name of the game. Now, balance training is the other thing you've been very vocal about. I remember years ago yeah. you wrote – you either wrote an article or it was a very well-written post. I forget which yeah. – where you really broke down a lot of the flaws with the, the supposed benefits of balance training. Yeah. And I think one of the salient points you made is that, look, if you get good at tightrope walking, that's not going to improve your surfing technique and, and vice versa. So balance training yeah. is very specific. So if you do power cleans on an indoor board, you know, that's not going to make you better at power cleans off the board. <laughs> yeah, so really what it originated with is um, – uh, my master's thesis at the University of Connecticut, um, you know, we ran basically from 2004 to 2005. It was published in the Journal of Strength and Conditioning Research in 2007. And we were looking at unstable surface training. Um, you know, does it have merits for performance? So to give you a little background, I mean, back in the 60s, we had research that showed that balance – um, and it's important to recognize balance is a proficiency. It's something you're good at or bad at. And you have different levels of good, and but it's very skill specific, right? So if you have great balance and single leg stance on a on a flat surface, that doesn't necessarily mean that you'll have phenomenal balance in two legged stance on an unstable right. surface. Right. It's it's very skill specific. Um, people use balance and stability interchangeably. They're actually different. Stability is a state. So um, you know, if I go from two legs to one leg, I become less stable because I've made my my base of support smaller. Um, if I lean to the side, I'm more unstable because my center of mass is outside my base of support. So what we do is we manipulate stability in our training programs in order to train balance. So what we asked when we did our, our master's thesis was, um, you know, if we put somebody on an unstable surface, you know, whether it's a BOSU ball or a Dyna disc or a wobble board, um, do we get uh, training benefits that carry over to uh, stable surface performance, um, you know, in terms of people who have no clinical condition. And that's a very important differentiation to make because yeah. there is research that shows that unstable surface training can be really, really valuable for people who have had um, a previous ankle sprain and develop something called functional ankle instability. Mm -hmm. So after you roll your ankle in a lateral ankle sprain, your, your peroneals, the muscles on the outside of your lower leg, there's a proprioceptive delay. They just don't kick on as, as fast as they should, and you're more likely to re-sprain that ankle. So certainly there's a place for doing unstable surface training or a rehab process and all that. But what's happened is, you know, in light of that, out, those outcomes and, you know, people with a vested financial interest in the success of these products, 
all of a sudden we've heard people saying, you know, hey, get on that BOSU ball, do your squats, it'll make you faster, you'll jump higher, do all this stuff. So we wanted to investigate whether there was, in fact, a, a carryover. Um, so believe it or not, they, our study subjects were the University of Connecticut men's soccer team. It was the number one team in the country at that time, and we, we did a training intervention with them during their spring season. Um, and what we actually found was – uh, that basically using unstable service training for as little as two to three percent of their overall training volume actually attenuated improvements in sprinting speed, jump height, things along those lines. So it, yeah. it basically helped to sap power. So that's a really significant thing because the spring season in soccer is the time when you get strong, you get fast, and then you condition in the summer to be ready for the fall to actually play soccer matches. So we, we expected to see across the board improvements, um, you know, in athletes, you know, in terms of running fast, jumping high, all that stuff. And we certainly did see that. But what we found were that the people who did zero unstable surface training interventions actually got faster and jumped higher um, on three of the four measures. Um, and it was a statistically significant difference um, than uh, people who included even just like it was like one exercise three days a week. Um, so what, what we kind of, you know, we had a bunch of theories postulating why, uh, you know, this happens, everything from kind of like creating a little bit more of a, ten, a tentative athlete to maybe increasing um, antagonist co-contraction during, you know, forceful movements, um, you know, which is something that you don't really want from a peak power development standpoint. So there were a lot of things that could have justified it. But what we basically said is you got to be really careful if you're using this with healthy people without a history of ankle sprain, um, especially if you're using them in substantial volume. So, you know, what I tell you is if even if you're a surfer or a skier or anything like that, if you're spending, you know, the, the overwhelming majority of your time on unstable service training, you're, you're probably making a really big mistake with your training. If you're going to include them, include them in really small doses and only with the right people. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, if you're already spending a lot of time in an unstable surface environment, such as a yep. surfer, snowboarder, et cetera, you don't need to spend more time in your strength and conditioning program. That should be to maybe balance out some of the imbalances you're creating through your Absolutely. sport. Yeah. yeah. So, so that was published in the JSCR. I mean, it was like over 90 pages when all was said and done. It was a crazy lit review. And I was, I mean, I was spoiled. I had some of the best sports scientists around. Dr. William Kramer was on the paper. Dr. Mm -hmm. Dave Tiberio was a phenomenal physical therapist was on my committee. Carl Marish was my, my advisor at the University of Connecticut. Chris West, who was associate head of strength and conditioning at UConn. Like I was, I was very spoiled to have brilliant people around me. And, um, you know, I look back on it. We were kind of the first 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 people ever to look at how a chronic, you know, it was a ten week training intervention um, in healthy athletes impacts performance. And and since then, there have actually been a couple studies that have come out that have have replicated our results and substantiated it. So you know, you just got to be really careful when you put somebody into a program. Like I said, yeah. you got to be able to justify why it's in there. And if the research doesn't support it, and the anecdotal observations don't support it, it probably doesn't belong there. I think one of the problems is when a trainer or a coach is motivated by marketing more than looking at the best path for improving performance. And what I mean by that is they're doing something that looks different than someone else yeah. as a way to separate themselves from their herd, even though it may not be useful or effective. Yeah, that's the thing. It's funny. Like, um, I don't have a gadget. You know what I mean? I, I, look, right, I right. look out there. I'm like, maybe I should have a gadget. I don't know. <laughs> but like, I'm like, I, I can't sell barbells. <laughs> like, right, right. You know, I'm like, oh, right. bands, we do a lot of rotator cuff stuff or manual resistance exercise, which require no equipment. Like, we're not trying to sell guys on anything other than results. Um, so I, I think that uh, that level of you know, kind of, um, you know, separation from any financial gain with a lot of this stuff. I think it, it helps to lend some credibility to what you do. And, you know, you, uh, use that to get better results. 
Yeah, because I remember I was talking to a bunch of trainers in the UK, and I was talking to my friend Christian. He said that a lot of trainers out here are not looking for more information. They're looking for ways to make more money. So it's the courses that are marketing information courses are going to be more appealing. And some part of a marketing course can be add this product that no one is using in your area so that you become the expert in that. And that's all fine and good if that's something useful. But if it isn't, then you're doing your clients a disservice. Yeah, I, my feeling is if you want to if you want to separate yourself in any industry, there's only two ways. It's either price or offering, and, and right, price is right. a crappy way to go. I mean, you're definitely be one, of, right. one of eight CrossFits in one town, or you're going <laughs> right. to right. be mom and pop drugstore trying to compete with Walmart. Right, so you, have, you have to compete on your offering. And what what I can tell you is that uh, novelty is is an important part of offering. Like it's something that is really really important to have because people get bored very easily in, in all aspects of their life. Novelty with a training implement gets old fast because it's hard to keep coming up with new implements. But if you can create novelty with an experience where every time somebody shows up, they feel like they're still part of that family. There's, um, there's something new happening. There's, you know, things that make them excited about keep coming back to the gym. You know, there's, there's new PRs, things like that. That's the, that's the kind of novelty that keeps people around long term and builds successful businesses. Nobody ever like, I mean, you could come out with a brand new version of the kettlebell every week if you want to, Mike. And right, that's right, not right. why people are going to like you. They're going to like you because you deliver high quality information, you deliver fantastic coaching, you deliver it with a personality that gets them engaged and makes them excited to train. Um, and then you probably have people that are only, you could do a seminar in the middle of nowhere in Idaho and they're going to travel to it because they know that you're going to deliver experience that makes them feel different than anybody else can. Yeah. And yeah. you don't get that with, hey, we have a new kettlebell. Like that's, that's not what it's about. Right, or some kind exactly. of uh, new equipment that yeah. will supposedly improve performance, but now it actually, if, if you once you get used to using that equipment, you go back to not using it, it actually takes away from your performance, and now it ruins yeah. that. Yeah, it takes away yeah, from performance, but it has the clutter in your house, you know, and yeah, it takes right. away from your relationship because your wife is looking like, what is all this crap, man, that you don't use? And it's funny, like, I don't, I, I mean, I could probably count on one hand the number of people I know in the industry who have really come up with, like, that, that game-changing yeah. piece of equipment right. that, you know, has sustained for such an extended period of time but there are also people that run like good like brick and mortar gym type operations like um i just i I don't know maybe like louis simmons with like the reverse hyper and having you know west five but there there aren't people that really have have done that over an extended period of time i'd have to i mean probably actually like randy hetrick with trx um you know trx was a game changer like you know but but you know randy's not running a gym uh, you know, he's, he's selling a product that makes gyms better and, and helps people improve their offering. So, um, yeah, I don't know all the answers, man, but, uh, I think, I think it comes down to making people feel special and, and equipment doesn't do that. Experiences do. Yeah. Well, I, mean, I think no one, that's what people do. They buy experiences, you know, and that's right. the thing. That's where they really come. They're coming, they're buying. I think a lot of these coaches forget that most of the time people are buying into them. They can care less about what you have. They can care less about how many certifications you have. A lot of times they don't even ask. They don't even care if you have one. Like, dude, what can you do for me? I heard, I talked to my friend. They said this about you. I want to see for myself, you know, because I see how she's raving about you, how he raves about you. I, and they want some of that. They don't want to yeah. feel like they're getting left out, that they're stuck with just the bum at some big box gym. It's like, well, <laughs> if you're doing all this, I want to, I want to do that. You know, I want to feel that way. You know, I want to talk. I want to actually join the discussion when you bring up this guy instead of just saying like, Oh, for real? They actually want to be like, yeah, she's telling the truth. I train with this guy too. People want to be a part of the conversation, not just necessarily be the audience listening to the conversation. 
There was a really good discussion this weekend. Um, I spoke at uh, the Perform Better uh, Providence Summit. It was my tenth year on the Perform Better tour, and I was like the I was the youngest presenter in the history of the tour. So um, I've been really spoiled to be around some really really good coaches for an extended period of time. And at the end of uh, Saturday, at every one of these events, they they do a Q and A. And there was somebody in the audience that said, you know, what recommendation would you give to those of us in the audience who someday want to be up there presenting on the panel? And you know, like there were the classic responses like, oh, be passionate. You know, everybody's passionate. Yeah, right. in my eyes. Right. But my, and Mike Boyle raised his hand and he said, you know, like, how about be so good at something um, that people want to listen to you? I'm like, right. yeah, that's a really good point. Like, I, I mean, it's 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 incredibly blunt. But, you know, I think uh, there are a whole lot of people out there that are just very vanilla. You know, well, I, th- I think the problem is when yeah. someone has that goal of being on the yeah. panel. Right. Yeah. It's like someone who has it's like an actor is like, oh, I want to win an Academy Award. Yeah. And they've never done a movie yet. Yeah. <laughs> it's, like, it's like, get really, like Matt Damon says, like, look, get really good at your craft. It's like, yeah. you don't, you don't want to pick roles and act a certain way because you think this is going to get you in the eyes of the Academy and you exactly. may win an award. So you get exceptional at your craft and you'll be on that panel and a lot of other panels if you so want. But Absolutely. when they're when they're thinking already, how do I get on that panel? And they're a brand new coach. It's like that's the wrong focus to have. It's like someone who just started in the business going, okay, I, I want to make six figures this year. So you should be happy if you're still in business by the end of this yeah. year. It's like right. don't worry about the money right now. Focus on building a great band, brand and being an excellent coach. The money will come. It's like what you said, Eric. If you want to separate yourself from the herd, produce great results. Yeah, because not a lot of people do that. <laughs> you know, so it's, it's the truth. My business partner has given some good presentations on it. And he actually did a, a talk called "Business Before Branding." Like, don't try to build a personal brand and let, until you've shown that you can pay your mortgage by by doing this. Yeah, you right. know what I mean? Like, there you have so many people that are so caught up in making sure that they have the right website name and that you know they're getting plenty of Instagram followers and all this stuff. I'm like, man, if you if you can't name the the four muscles of the rotator cuff, you probably shouldn't be training professional baseball players. Like, it's the it's the honest to god truth. But I think you know. We definitely do have a little bit of a, uh, an industry trend of, of trying to like ascend a little bit too quickly. And, you know, I'm, I'm probably guilty of it too. I look back to what I was doing in my early 20s and I was building a brand. Um, you know, I was, I was, I was probably one of the first to market with respect to being a young guy on the internet that, you know, that kind of advanced at a, at a young age. And I, I look at it now and it's, it's a different game. It's a very saturated market. It's a lot harder to do. And I think that just underscores the importance of you got to be able to differentiate yourself with your results and how you make people feel. Yeah, because, I mean, who gets bored with making results? with getting yeah. training results, right? <laughs> right. Like whenever Absolutely. people talk about like, oh, I'm tired of using this program, it's like, no, you're tired of not getting results. Right. If you were getting if you were setting PRs every week or your weights were moving up every time you walked in the gym or you're doing more reps or you're looking better in the mirror, you're not going to be fed up of the program. Yeah, absolutely. Right. And I think even beyond that, like results are results, but like you have to remember, like, so, so I have guys that throw a hundred miles an hour. Like right. they're, right. they're probably a hundred to 120 of them on the planet. And we have, you know, probably six or eight of them that, that train with us. We have a guy who's playing in Japan who's thrown in excess of, of 100 miles an hour like regularly throughout his career. It's, oh. I mean, it's like a, an insane thing to do. And so with those guys, I mean, you can't very well say, hey, listen, um, you know, I'm going to get you to 107. <laughs> like it, just, it doesn't happen. That's it's, true. It's limits. If you're already that elite on, a, on an insane schedule, the, the the increments are smaller. Like it's like being an 800 pound deadlifter. You might have to fight for 16 weeks to pull 810. Like that's a that's a lot of work to get in to get to that point. So I think what you have to do is you have to do two things. One, you have to figure out are there are there shifts in priorities that you identify that other people don't see is, Hey, here's something I saw on your evaluation. That's going to allow you to be able to sustain that velocity and be healthy over an extended period of time. Right. So you can leverage that hundred mile an hour fastball to make more money and support 
family. But I think even beyond that, is there something that we can do in our training offer to, uh, to engage you, to make sure that you still want to take care of your body, that it's not getting boring because for whatever reason this came to eat for you. So there, there are times to kind of, of, of tread water from a result standpoint, um, but do so in a way that keeps people motivated about the actual training process. Yeah. I think progress needs to be defined in a different way too, because like, let's say, let's say I hit a PR of 550 on the deadlift and then five years later, I can still do that PR safely. Some would say, oh, you haven't made any progress, but you've gotten five years older and you're still able to do something safely and you yep. haven't been injured. That's also a form of success in making progress. I agree with you 100%. Um, you know, and I, I think there's something to be said about sustaining performance, you know, over an extended period of time. I'm, I'm, I'm the dad of 19-month-old twin daughters. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, when our, when our girls were born, I I mean, I dropped 10 pounds in the first six months, came off me pretty quickly. And, uh, you know, I've, I've still really worked hard to, like, sustain that. And, like, to me, being able to do it at 35, what I did at 30 is a dramatic difference with all the, the stress. Life's sure. Us. But I also see that in the, in the professional ranks. Like, um, one of the things that we talk a lot with our baseball guys, around is and i don't know if this number has never been published but this is more of an anecdotal conversation i had with a guy who worked within an organization who did some of the studies he said that your chances of making it to the big leagues baseball were 50 percent uh as high if you got a surgery in the minor league so if you had an elbow surgery cut your chances of getting to the big leagues in half like that's a huge deal so if we can keep a guy performing at a high level keep him healthy for five years he might be able to just sustain it and make it to the big leagues at 27, 28, 29 when he thought that that dream was over. So um, being healthy and putting yourself in a position to thrive is really, really important. Yeah, that's a really important focus because imagine someone who's a great high school football player who gets a terrible injury and then that impedes him getting a scholarship and then maybe he would have gone on to the NFL after that. And it all started from training that was counterproductive early in his path in this whole way. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, cool, man. We don't want to keep you on all day. You've been just a ton of great information. Well, where can people find out more about everything you're doing? Uh, probably two places. The first, my website is ericcressy.com, E-R-I-C-C-R-E-S-S-E-Y.com. And then on um, our facilities, we have a gym in both Hudson, and in Jupiter, Florida. That's CressySportsPerformance.com. And is there is there anything that you've been researching recently that you're excited about? Oh, that's a New great stuff. question. Yeah. Right, right in my wheelhouse right now, we're seeing a ton of thoracic outlet syndrome cases in Major League Baseball right now. Um, some some pretty big names that have happened in the last couple of weeks have gone in for surgery for. And that's kind of like a, a niche that we've done really really well with, and help guys manage that conservatively. And help them after the surgeries and things like that. So um, probably not necessarily wildly applicable to a lot of our readers, but that's what I'm geeking out right now, and uh, you know something you're going to see certainly moving forward. Yeah, one one great thing about the age we're in right now is just the prolific dissemination of information. It's like there's so much, there's a lot there's a lot of crappy information, right? And people tend to focus on that and complain about, it, but there's also a lot of great information in all arenas, breakthroughs happening left mm-hmm. and right. That if you're not keeping up to date with it. As someone who's in this industry, you're going to be just pushed to the wayside quickly. Absolutely. They're inventing new surgeries. We're, we're learning more about nutritional impacts and all this different stuff. So if, if you're not uh, staying on top of the latest stuff, you're definitely falling behind really yeah, fast. Yeah, stem <laughs> cells is something that's really exciting. Yeah. Now you have elbow injuries where you can inject your yep. own stem cells in there and it heals injuries that you may have had for years. 
Yeah, that's that's kind of like a big frontier in baseball. Now there there's still kind of like mixed results on it, but uh, you know, it could be one of those things where they refine things and you know be be a game changer for a lot of guys to avoid surgery. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Well, hey man, thanks a lot again. Appreciate great talking it. to you. Awesome no problem. information. Thanks, and really we'll, enjoyed we'll have, it. Yeah, great pleasure. We'll have this info, We'll have this episode out later this week, and I'll send over you a link. Sounds great. Thank you very much for having me. All right, hey, thanks a lot, Eric. Take care. Take care. All right. And that's Eric Cressy. You know, we always one thing we do consistently is we bring the best people on the show. Charles Poliquin, Eric Cressy, we just uh, Christian Thibodeau. I mean, there's so many. It's just it's just, we have basically a free database on both of our websites and iTunes to some extent of the best people in the business. It's like a who's who. It's like, dude, it's like, there are people that are selling like DVDs with all these, you know, these experts or experts of this caliber, you know, or they have these seminars where they put all them together and it costs thousands of dollars. And here we are. We bring them here on the show for you. You know, right. actually, it's probably a little bit, a little bit more. You get a little bit more for the fact that. Instead of going to one of these seminars where you have all these heavy hitters going on where they may have just a limited amount of time, these guys come on the show and pretty much we just let them have at it. And, you know, hey, man, if they want to take two hours, you know, to discuss things, so be it. You know, it's not sitting there like, oh, it's like a TED talk. You got all right, you got 18 minutes. <laughs> you know, here's your. And then and then you as the listener can listen to it whenever you want. Over you can listen to it at your own pace. I mean, there's a lot of shows I listen to where. I'll listen maybe to 10, 15 minutes at a time because there's yeah. so much information that exactly. I was like, okay, I need to listen to this when I'm in a place where I can sit down and write some stuff exactly. down. If I'm driving, you know, I'm listening, you know, I'm like, okay, yeah, I need to write this down. Or, okay, I'm about to get out of the car. Okay, I'm going to have to come back and listen again because maybe some jackass just cut me off and interrupted a very good part of that podcast. I was listening to like, damn, you know. So, yeah, man, that's the, that's I'll, the beauty I'll of this technology that we have now. And one thing I've implemented that's been great is I've just wanted to add more activity to my day. So I'm doing these two-mile walks every day, no matter what. If, if I'm training that day, I still do the two-mile walks if I'm not training. Now, when it's when the weather is better, my dogs go with me. Right now, it's way too hot. So for me, I just walk out there in the heat. Now, some will say it's way too hot. I go, look, man, that's a positive thing because exactly. that heat is good for your muscles, it's right? It's good for your muscles, but, and it's also good for you, you know your mental toughness as well. Yeah, like, exactly. exactly. You know, so you know, especially in the field I'm in now, it's like, okay – if you can't just sit there and walk when it's like 90 degrees with a heat index of 110, you know, how can you handle other stresses in your life? You know, right. if you just came right. to do like 20 minutes of that, what's going to really push you to like try to really push and get add another 10 pounds to your deadlift in the gym with air conditioning? <laughs> you know, so, no, so I mean, there's a lot of hills. There's a lot of hills out here. It's blue skies. It's sunny. So <laughs> that's all good. It's really hot. So that's definitely something you're that's basically a form of resistance you're working against, yeah. which I don't mind. But the heat actually feels great on the body. I mean, I tell you what, after you do heavy deadlifts or heavy squats, instead of just coming home and taking a nap, come home and immediately go do that walk. You're going to yeah, loosen up. That's what up I usually do now because now we have another rescue. So we're right. walking twice as long now because when we got him, he wasn't in shape. You know, now we have an English bulldog. And, you know, of course, I read up on him. You know, there's always these health issues or whatever. Else. But, you know, as I was reading that stuff, I said, yes, probably because they have unhealthy owners. So just always. in a matter of like a week or two. You know, we saw his health turn around just for the fact that he's actually getting out every night. It's hot here in Houston as well. But so we walk at night. We walk late at night, like about 11 o'clock at night, you know, around our community. And we do about two miles as well, just going round and round. And, of course, he can't do the entire two miles right off the bat. But just within a week or two, he went from where we just made one round around the community where he was <laughs> he sounded like a straight up asthma attack victim after that first night, man. You know, just going just one lap around to now to the point where he's actually out trying to outrun my Basenji, you know, trying to get ahead yeah. of him. Yeah. Who's got the longer legs or whatever. So they now the brothers are competing with each other, like who can get around the fastest. So, you know, again, and it's helping us, you know, because now there's really no excuse. And it helps me because I'm coming straight from the gym. I come home. 
refuel a little bit, and then I'm ready. That's actually like active recovery for me. Right. That as well. It's It's one of those things you can't overtrain. So I always tell people, start walking every day, no matter what. None of this five days on, two days off. You don't need rest days. Every day, walk. (laughs) We're walking. So why why do you need to have a rest day for walking? And I don't consider this this a workout either. Like for me, walking is like a separate category. Yeah, it's a separate category to me than working out. Like I don't, I don't put this in my training journal. You know, like yeah, I walked two miles today. For me, it's like walking is transportation. That's how you get from one point to another, and you should be able to do that without having to train for it, right? But, but like you said, it's very good mentally. Also, I like to listen to music, so why not walk and listen to music? So I'm getting some activity instead of sitting around listening to music. Or I like to listen to podcasts, so why not walk and listen to a show instead of again sitting around being inactive listening to a show? Exactly. So yeah, man. Like I said, it is it is great therapy at that time. So yeah, man, you get to unwind. So that workout kicked your ass instead of sitting there feeling just defeated when you get home and just feel like a big lump of clay sitting there like, damn, you know, I just want to just kind of get myself together here. Take that walk. You know, don't punk yourself out like, oh, man, after that workout, I, I, I don't know if I can walk, man. You know, leg day. I always see people always talking about leg day like, oh, come on, man. Really? So, again, just, my attitude is, man, no matter how tired you are, no matter how beat you are, you should be able to walk around the block. And like I said, if you're not, if you're not a freaking quadriplegic, someone that's in a confined right, to a wheelchair, right. walking is something you have to do every day. Okay, for the most part. So I mean, that's something that is for you. First of all, appreciate the fact you can walk, yeah, you know, exactly. because there are those who wish they could have that problem where they Absolutely. feel like, oh man, I, now I gotta go walk. You know, so I always keep that in mind. Guy well. who, uh, who was a paraplegic and they developed this mechanical device which actually helped him walk in an assistive oh. manner. And he's like, he's like, man, I never want to sit down again. He's like, he's like, I just want to keep walking and walking and walking because he'd been stuck sitting down all this yeah, time. Yeah. So, you know, what's, what's ironic and tragic in a lot of ways is how people try to avoid inactivity so much that now they're in a forced inactivity situation. Right. And they go, oh, man, I wish I could be more active. It's like well, you had fucking 40 years to be active. <laughs> you didn't do shit with it. So your body said, oh, well, we might as well just sit on our ass all the time. <laughs> the body's like, well, I'm not going to keep beating this dead horse. I keep telling you I want to go out. And you're like, eh, I want to watch TV. <laughs> so, yeah, man. It's it's The thing about yeah. something like this, like well, a lot of people are going to listen to this and be like, man, that's a great idea, what Mike and Sincere were talking about. Let's go do two-mile walks every day. I can listen to a show. I can take my dogs out. And then months later, months are going to go by. You haven't even done it once it, because it's easy <laughs> to do. It's easy not to do, man. That's just the reality here. In fact, it's so easy to do that when you actually hear us say this. As we're saying it, get up right then, you know, and, and just you know, start listening be, to the rest of the show. Right now, you to. He's like, well, <laughs> since you brought it up, you know, go ahead and just go ahead and listen to the rest of the show on my phone and let me go and take this walk. Well, that's why I say you got to do it every fucking day, no matter what. Like yesterday, for example, I went to the dentist. I had a bunch of errands to run. It was the middle. It was it was at night. I'd already taken the dogs to the park. I hadn't done the walk, though. So I was like, you know what? I'm going to go do it right now. Because I don't want one day to go by because I want to build this habit of doing it every day. And I'm on maybe like day 10 of doing this, like just taking myself for a walk, basically, you know, yeah. separate from walking the dogs. So I got two older dogs. They can't walk along. My dog, Grover, he likes to go sprinting. So I, anyway, it's all separate activities. But to create a new habit, people often say, oh, you got to do it for 30 days. Bullshit. You got to do it for 90 days. <laughs> yeah, you got to do it for lot. 90 
And if you, same thing if you want to quit something. If you can quit something for 90 days, you can quit it for the rest of your life. Come on, why do you think when you get a job, days. they give you a 90 day probation period? Okay. <laughs> Cause they're, they're going to see if they really quit you after 90 days. So. Well, the problem is, is you're going to be more reluctant to quit too after 90 days because exactly. you built the habit of the job. So it could be a job. It could be a job that sucks. And like during the first month, you're like, I should quit this fucking job. But, then, but after 90 days, you're like, ah, oh well. I made you know, it just far, you know. <laughs> And they so kept me, so you know that must say something, right? <laughs> that's that's the good and bad. Is like to develop a, a good habit, you got to do it for three months. But if you develop a bad habit and you do it for three months, it's going to be very difficult to quit it now. Exactly, it works both ways, man. <laughs> but so yeah, just, there's nothing. Once it becomes a habit, man, it, it sucks when you miss that day. You know uh, exactly. You look forward because you're kind of addicted to it. Like, oh man, I didn't walk today. I mean, I didn't walk last night. Shh. You know, and then you make an extra effort, like, oh, I'm gonna make sure I get, I'm gonna make sure I get it today. It's, you know, I'm not gonna let anything get in my way because you just kind of feel like, again, you feel like you missed out on something. You, you, that experience where it felt good, it's like, oh, I, I like that feeling. Nothing, I mean, nothing's more addictive than feeling good, man. Yeah, it's so true. <laughs> so. Like every, everything we chase is to feel better, right? Whether exactly. it's a workout or a meal. Even when we do negative things to ourselves, yeah, you know, absolutely. we lie to ourselves until it makes us feel better. Whether you're doing, you're addicted to drugs or whatever else, for that one moment, you felt good. It's coming off that high that sucked ass. Okay. That's the thing about it. Well, you know, you know, the problem with bad habits is just the self-destructive mental side effects that come with it. And what I mean is, Let's say like there's something you're trying to resist, whether it's gambling, it's whatever it is, it's some self-destructive habit, and you resist it, and you feel better. You're built, you're building that mental fortitude, and then one day you give in. It's not just that you gave in; it's the way you're gonna feel afterwards. That guilty feeling of like, oh, I shouldn't have done that, or like, you know, why did I do that, or I just messed up all this progress of resisting it. You know, that is what can like lead to that spiral. You gotta make effect. sure you feel that void when you try to resist something. When you try to take something away, you gotta put something in its place that's gonna be better. So that's therefore, right. you're not gonna have time to really think about the thing that you let go of. You know, so and a lot of times people just want to go cold turkey and then just like ah. I'm so glad that's, and just kind of, you're, you're happy with that moment that you've removed something. Okay. There's a hole right there. That's, that's that hole of, of a need for something. You got to put something else in that hole, man. <laughs> yeah. yeah look, look, that was coming out. It's like, <laughs> you might want to. Well, <laughs> you gotta put some. You can already see the hole. memes being made right now. I said, Zero again. Like, look, if there's a hole, you gotta put something in it. Holes <laughs> <laughs> weren't meant to be empty, man. I mean, come on. <laughs> That's gonna be like a new pickup line. It's like, look, you got a hole, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my brain was telling my mouth like, dude, shut, shut him up, shut it up, shut it up. Oh God, he got no, out. No, it's kind of like it's kind of like shutting your door and you, like you're about to lock your car door. Oh, you, yeah, know you, the, know. you know the keys are in there, but because you're in the middle of doing it, you're like, oh well, let me just keep going. <laughs> you got to commit, man. Somebody, don't do anything half-ass, man. Do everything with your whole ass. You know, <laughs> like my coach said, if you're gonna make a mistake, make it a good one, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Speaking of that, that's a good. Uh, that's a good segue into this next topic. I want to. I don't want to leave the listeners hanging because I promised this whole John Jones discussion. Speaking of mistakes, it's like okay, many of you are you a lot of you that are a lot of you that are not UFC fans. You can go ahead and shut off right now. You're not going to care necessarily. Just make sure you go both our websites and, and you know support the show. And, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. It's, it's, make sure. So, MikeMaller.com, sincere. I mean, to my newwarriortraining.com, Patreon.com/slash LLA Podcast. All right. Oh, and one more one more thing is. 
leave a review on iTunes and Stitcher iTunes after Stitcher. after every episode. Many of you have just are one hitter quitters, right? You leave that review three years ago. You're still listening to the show. You've never left a review again. Well, look, you can leave a you review after every episode if you want to, and that helps us. It helps us get more views. It helps us get better rankings. And it helps us keep the show free because one thing we're, we're working on is a pay model and somewhat of a free model. We'll get more into that as we get closer to it. Yeah. But the more numbers we get, the more inclined we are to keep the show free because then it's good for other things we like to do. So there you go. And use coupon code LLA when you go to both our websites. So now for you non-UFC fans, we'll see you on the next episode. UFC fans, here we go. <laughs> and those of you that are interested in just hormone optimization, you may, you may find this interesting. Yeah, you actually might get right. something else out of this besides just the whole aspect of MMA because it can apply to other things as well. You know. Okay, so here's what happened with John Jones. As many of you know, he was not able to compete at UFC 200 because he popped positive for some banned substances. And it didn't come out until, I believe, last week or maybe early this week what the substances are. And the media keeps saying two estrogen blockers, which is technically true, but also factually incorrect, and I'll get into that. The two things that he popped positive for are Clomid and Letrozole. So let's talk about Clomid first. Clomid is what's called a CIRM, which is a selective estrogen receptor modulator. Just like we talked about SARMs a while back with Anthony Roberts, those are selective androgen receptor modulators. Okay, so what does that mean? It means it works on some areas to lower estrogen and not others. And that's a very important point. So technically, Clomid is an estrogen control product or an estrogen blocker or an estrogen modulator, however you want to however you want to define it, but no one takes it for the purpose of lowering estrogen, and here's why. The way Clomid works is that it lowers estrogen in your brain. Now, we're talking about men here, and as a result of that, a signal is sent from the brain to the testes to make more testosterone. Now, the reason why I think this happens is because your body is always looking for balance. So estrogen goes too low in men, Estrogen goes up from the conversion of testosterone to estrogen. So by creating more testosterone, there's more opportunity for some of that to convert back to estrogen. So anyway, that's why this is happening. But the long short of this is that people take Clomid as a testosterone booster. So it increases. It's not a natural product like my aggressive strength testosterone booster, which, John, if you took, wouldn't have flagged those tests. <laughs> it would have been nearly as effective, if not more effective. It would have been more effective because you would have had that payday and still be fighting. But the way it, it Clomid increases testosterone naturally, so often it's used as an alternative to TRT, HCG, other mechanisms of increasing testosterone. That's the good with it. Now, the bad with it is that if you lower estrogen in the brain too much, there's a lot of very negative side effects, one being that you have mood decline. You just feel off. The other being that your sex drive could go down to zilch. I mean, no sex drive whatsoever, no sex function whatsoever. Now, I actually did an ex interesting experiment with Clomid, so I, I do have some personal experience with it. After we had Dr. Mark Gordon on the show, I looked into it a little bit further, and I wanted to compare how Clomid worked for me versus my testosterone booster. So I'm like, okay, this is perfect. I haven't used my T-booster for about eight weeks right now. Instead of starting another cycle, I'm going to try this Clomid, use it for four weeks, get some blood work, and then see how it compares. Now, I wasn't able to complete this test, and I'll tell you why, because I couldn't stay on this for longer than two weeks because I felt horrible. I felt terrible. Hmm. You know, first week, not really much benefit. No, I didn't feel good or bad one way or the other. The second week, I noticed that my mood was off. 
And I'm already prone to mild depression as it is. So anything that throws my mood off is a big red flag for me. It's a big concern. And then sex drive took a big hit. And no guy likes his sex drive taking a big hit. All right. right. So you're not going to just suffer through that. It's like, you know what? Nor, I'll just deal nor with his this. women. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's like, I'm not going to just, you know, you're not going to have the mentality of, I'm just going to deal with this for the next six weeks. I don't care what the upside is. Right. And what's the point of taking a testosterone booster if your sex drive goes down, right? It's kind of it's, it's a real irony right there in that you're taking a product that increases your testosterone, but because it lowers estrogen in your brain, even though your testosterone levels are higher, I never measure to confirm or one way or the other, but it, it does work and the literature supports that. My testosterone was likely higher, but because the estrogen was so much lower in the brain, the sex drive took a huge hit. So this is a separate point I want to make here is the goal, man, is not to get testosterone as high as possible and estrogen as low as possible. You need to have a balance between the two. And it's basically a 30 to 50 to 1 ratio of testosterone to estrogen. If your estrogen dips too low, it will have serious consequences on your sex drive, your mood, and also it can have a negative impact on cholesterol, your bone health, just a lot of other spirals that go with it. You have to realize that we have this hormone for a reason. People often say, okay, estrogen is a female hormone, which is not really true because men have it as well. And testosterone is a male hormone. It's like, okay, well, women have it. So we have both of these things. We just have a lot more. Men should have a lot more testosterone than women, and women should have a lot more estrogen than men. But we need both. All right, so anyway, that's what Clomid does. So basically – the benefit of taking Clomid is that, is that it's a testosterone booster. Not everyone is going to have this side effect that I mentioned, but it can be common and it's certainly something to look out for. Now, the other product that he popped for is called Letrozole. Now, Letrozole is an extremely powerful aromatase inhibitor, which means that it blocks the conversion of testosterone to estrogen by lowering an enzyme called aromatase. It's given to breast cancer, women with breast cancer, because that's an estrogen-dominant condition, and it actually has a lot of benefits there. Now, the dose that they take is about 5 milligrams per day, depending on the doctor, the condition, et cetera. Any guy who takes that, <laughs> you, don't, you don't even want to take that much in a week. That's how potent this stuff is. So a, a man taking this for the purpose of blocking testosterone to estrogen, you're going to take about 0.5 milligrams to 1 milligram every other day. So we're looking at 3 milligrams or so per week, right? So you don't even take this daily. And some can take it even a lot less than that depending on what your estrogen levels are. You may have estrogen that's a little bit too high. So you take, a, you take maybe 0.5 milligrams per week as opposed to – Someone who may have severe estrogen dominance who may take the, large, the, the stronger potent size of this, which is one milligram three times per week. Now, there really isn't a reason to take something like this unless you're taking anabolics to block conversion of so – to lower the excess estrogen or possibly Clomid because even though Clomid on paper is an estrogen blocker, it only blocks estrogen in the brain, not elsewhere. So you can have low estrogen in the brain, you have high estrogen elsewhere, and you can develop gyno, or as our friend Ori Hoffmeckler would say, beach teats, <laughs> by taking Clomid. So even though it lowers estrogen in the brain, it doesn't lower estrogen elsewhere. So it's, it's, it's it can be a real clusterfuck of a situation, right, where you take Clomid and your estrogen in your brain goes down, so you feel terrible and your sex drive is low, but your testosterone goes way up. And that converts into estrogen elsewhere, which causes bitch tits. Now imagine the situation of you have no sex drive, you have poor mood, your testosterone level is high, 
but you have bitch tits. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's just a bad situation here, man. So you gotta, I mean, these aren't things that you play around with, man, right? Like someone who's thinking about taking Clomid, you want, you want to go to a doctor like Dr. Mark Gordon, who does a thorough exam to make sure it's a fit. Honestly, and I know I'm biased because I sell my testosterone booster, but that's definitely something you should consider taking before something like Clomid because the aggressive strength testosterone booster is not going to lower estrogen in the brain and it's not going to lower it too much. It has mild estrogen blocking properties, which you want in a testosterone booster, but I've never had anyone take aggressive strength, and this is out of thousands of people who have ever reported that their estrogen levels went too low on it. So that's something to be thinking. And then for someone who does have high estrogen, that's why I have EC. Sometimes if you take EC and the aggressive strength testosterone booster, your estrogen levels can go too low. I actually have to be cautious with EC myself because my estrogen is – in an optimal range without taking anything, really. So I, I like to take maybe one cap a couple times a week myself just to, to maintain that. If I go to three caps a day or even two caps a day, I find my estrogen goes too low. And I don't even need a blood test to confirm this because I know what low estrogen feels like just from the mood side effects. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so why was he taking these two things together? Back to Clomid and Letrozole. Why take both together? Well, for the reasons I just said, Clomid – you have to look at it as a testosterone booster and then letrozole as an estrogen blocker from the, from the testosterone conversion to estrogen with Clomid. Now, the next question is he claims he didn't knowingly take these substances. That may be true, and I think there's a good chance that is true. Just from looking at the way he acted at the press conference, he's either an, an Academy Award winning actor. He put on an Academy Award acting performance – He's a great liar. These are all possible things. He could be the best liar in the world. It's been shown before, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. DC first started, you know, with their little rivalry. <laughs> but know. I felt like he may he may just be sad because he got caught, right? Not, or not he may because be sad because that estrogen is really off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, exactly. those tears. Here's the thing about exactly. another thing about psychology: when people are faking and they cry, they usually only can cry from one eye. You know, uh, okay. he had he had some boo boo tears coming from both eyes. Right. They were really really red. <laughs> okay, I don't know if it was just because you know, hey. You know, I got caught or it was like, damn, I, you know, this really sucked. I didn't know. Or I lost a lot of damn money over this this crap, <laughs> you know, well, and my legs well, may be well, actually why, tarnished now. Here's why I don't think he knowingly took it at his age and his just the way he looks physically. Yeah, there's there's really no reason. There's the, the benefits of taking this for someone in his situation are nowhere near worth it. So either he got some extremely bad advice or. Which is definitely possible, right? There's a lot of bad advice out right. there. But it doesn't really make sense for someone in his situation to be taking any of these things. Now, some say, okay, well, maybe he took these after a cycle of anabolics to get his levels back to normal. And that's certainly possible. And, and some idiots even say that he took these to mask anabolics, which is not possible and completely improbable. It's not going to mask anything. And the whole point of a masking agent is so that you don't get caught on a right. test. Right, you know what? So, so basically, not to took, enhance the problem, he, make yeah, it be well, even more visible. He, you know? he took two banned substances to mask other banned substances. What's the point of doing that? Either way, you're screwed. So, you get a lot of dumb arguments out there on the internet. I remember some people were even saying, "Oh, he took this testosterone booster from a company that he's sponsored by, which has DIM in it, and that's an aromatase inhibitor." <laughs> it's like DIM, DIM is made from fucking DIM. broccoli. All right, you're not going to eat broccoli and, and, and score hot <laughs> on a performance test. DIM is a natural substance. It's not on the banned list. 
And it's 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 also questionable whether it's even an aromatase inhibitor. It's, uh, it doesn't. Work. It's not a powerful estrogen blocker at all. It's an estrogen metabolizer, meaning that it improves the ratio of good to bad estrogen. So that that's a separate topic that we go on forever. But the whole point is is that that's a flawed argument or a discussion point to even bring into this. Now here's what I think happened. My feeling is that he did take a tainted supplement because the supplement industry is notorious for this kind of stuff. I put up a link on Twitter the other day from the FDA website, and it was a list of all of the tainted products that they have tested. And there were hundreds of products on here. Most of them were boner pills. So a lot of people buy these herbal boner pills, and they're yeah. going, okay, I want an alternative Viagra or Cialis. Cheaper, and guess, yeah. Well, guess what? You're, you're getting Viagra or Cialis. You might as well just go buy Viagra or Cialis than buying something that you think is an alternative, and it turns out that it actually is that right. or some similar analog to that. And it was, it was a, I mean, there's just hundreds of products on there. But there were also some sports supplement company products on there that did have different steroids or stuff like Clomid and Letrozole in it. So sometimes you're buying what you think is an over-the-counter natural estrogen blocker product, and it actually has letrozole or a Remedex or something like that in it. Because think about it. You only need to have 0.5 milligrams a couple times a week of letrozole to be effective. You could easily add that to any product you want to sell without missing a beat. Same thing with Clomid. Clomid, you only need about 25 milligrams a couple, again, every other day or even twice a week. So these are low-dose products that you could easily add to something without it being obvious that there's something added to it where – a 500 milligram capsule all of a sudden becomes a thousand milligrams because you just added a bunch of stuff in. Now, if you go to an FDA approved lab to make your supplements like I do, like these reputable labs, they will not make the product for you when they do their certificate of analysis and it turns out that you have illegal products in it or a gray area products in it. They're just not going to deal with that because they can, if you get sued, they can get sued, right? right? So even if, even from a ethical standpoint, even if they don't care about that, they don't want to get sued. They want to stay in business. So they're going to test and make sure that you don't have things in there that are going to get them in trouble. And that's good for you, too, because, frankly, if there's something in there that I don't want in there, I want to know that. I'm not going to go to production and just pass it on to the customer. I'll, I'll eat the cost of that. I want I use these products myself. I want them to be safe. I have friends who use these products, family members who use my supplements. I want to make sure that it's safe and that what's on the label is the only thing that's in the actual product. So anyway, where I'm going is that this situation could have been easily avoided if John only took supplements that had a certificate of analysis from a third-party lab that confirmed this is what's on the label, this is what's in it, and that's all that's in it. Mm -hmm. And I don't understand why a professional athlete wouldn't have that as the bare-bone minimum way to make to protect yourself. Well, Frankly, a lot of times they depend on their, they depend on their coaches and their team. Pretty much, these guys just show up to work. I tell me what to do, coach. And that's pretty much what they do. They, they're very hands off. Not, not just athletes. Even, you see that just even with money with, with celebrities. You know, I just let my accountant handle it or my people handle it because uh, all they want to do is just go right. in and do what needs to be done for whatever they're doing as their profession. They don't want to deal with all that other stuff. So they feel like my nutritionist or my coach or whatever, he, he's handling that. He's a professional. That's what I pay him for. I trust him, you know, to handle that. And that's not, I mean, and, and, they, and they should be able to trust whoever's right. around them. So you got to make sure you hire the right person. I mean, John doesn't have time to deal with this stuff. He's training several times a day. He's working on his craft. And then, and then he's got to go get research supplement companies and get COAs and, yeah. and all of that stuff. No, of course he has to have, he has to delegate that responsibility to someone else. But now the onus is on that person to make sure they do these things. Right. Frankly, I would go a step beyond a COA. I would probably, 
just from a standpoint of paranoia, have those product, whatever product I'm thinking about using, I would probably have analyzed by a third-party lab myself just to make sure there isn't anything in it. Because think about it. John missed out on a $30 million payday. Yeah. That's the estimate at UFC 200. It, it, it wouldn't have cost more than a couple hundred dollars or a couple thousand dollars even just to make sure everything you're taking is legit. Yeah, and that $30 million just estimate from that payday of that fight alone, not counting possible loss of endorsements now after this. You know, because and he may, he may be out of the game. themselves from him because of this, you know, That's and, right. on top of the other troubles he just recently came back from. So, well, I mean, that's and then he may be out of the game for two years. That's yeah. old. That's going to be missed earnings. The supplement company that he is sponsored by, Gad, they immediately issued a statement saying, hey, it's not our stuff. <laughs> <laughs> so I hope yeah. they have COAs to prove that because. Right. They can easily deflect responsibility over there. Right. So what what John needs to do now is make sure he, hopefully he has product of everything that he has taken for this camp and maybe even the last several camps just to be on yeah, the safe side. Exactly. And you send those in to a third-party lab and see if anything pops hot. Hopefully something does because the suspension will be a lot lower if, that is, if, if that's what happens. Right. Because Yoel Romero, right, he yeah. popped hot for something as well. And it actually turned out to be a SARM. One of the SARMs that we talked about with Anthony Roberts uh, called Osterin. Now, Osterin is legal to use as a consumer, but it's a banned product in any in most sports, but in the UFC in particular. So anyway, he popped hot for that. And he did take a supplement that had Osterin in it, but it wasn't on the label. So this is what I'm going back to, a yeah. tainted product. So you're buying something. You're like, wow, this stuff works. And it's like, yeah, it works, but not because of what's on the label. That's the problem. So you keep taking this thing thinking that you're protected, thinking that these supplement companies did their due diligence and, they, and they're ethical and they care about you, which a lot of good companies are, including mine. But a lot don't give a fuck. A lot of them just want to make money. Right. And they're going to make money by the easiest path to making money is being lazy and just throwing stuff in there that is either illegal or or a banned product because you know that it's effective. So in this case, Austrian was in it. They were able to prove that it was in the product. They worked at a deal with USADA where he only got six months suspension as opposed to two years. Right. Tim Means is another guy. He popped hot for a supplement, and it had Austrian in it as well. So he also managed to get a reduced sentence because of this. And I've, I've noticed that John has hired the same lawyer that worked with Yoel and Tim Means. Mm. So it's, it's obviously they're, obviously they're going to build a defense that's very similar to what those two guys did. And I, I really hope as a fan and also someone that would hate to see someone like John not earn out of, out of making a mistake that he wasn't even aware of unbeknowingly to him, I hope that something that he took did have these things in it so that – it can clear it for him, and he only gets six months, and he's back fighting early next year. Right. Is it possible that some supplement he took had these things in it? Absolutely. And hopefully that's what it will turn out in the next month or two as this process unravels. But, man, talk about a, a, a big waste of time, a big waste of money, and just an unnecessary nuisance hassle to deal with because you weren't willing to do a few preemptive measures. Right, the due diligence, yeah. Honestly, I don't know if it's worth any professional athlete taking any supplement, to tell you the truth. If you're a UFC fighter, you're, you're better off just eating food. You're trying to eat food and because, drink water, man. <laughs> yeah, because anything could be tainted. I'm not saying that I, – I don't believe my supplements are tainted. I do believe I do the, the, the proper measures to ensure they're not. But nothing is 100% foolproof. I mean something could get in there. Who knows? Something could get in there from maybe the manufacturing plant. Something yeah, was cross-pollinated from another over. product yeah. they have going on in there. Well, that's why you want to only work with manufacturing plants that don't make those products. But what if they made a mistake? Right. 
on the and it was it was an innocent mistake and as a result of that mistake you get hit with this you know that's why they have heavy insurance that's why you have insurance everyone's out to protect themselves which we should do but it's it's one of those things where if you're a UFC fighter you have to look at what is the upside of me taking some supplements and is it worth the potential risk of me being banned there are a lot of good supplements out there but frankly none of them are game changers right you know, including mine. Mine are great, but they're not going to be game changers for professional athletes who are already genetically gifted. That it's worth taking the risk. Exactly. It's a thirty million dollar mistake, man. That sucks. Yeah. <laughs> to my, yeah. yeah, it sucks. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Now, apparently, you can tell Usada all of the products you're taking ahead of time mm-hmm. because they generally keep lists themselves. So I'm like, in other words, they'll look at the FDA database and say, well, we recommend you don't take this because it's on this. The problem with the FDA database is, is that that's not preemptive. Those are products that are already on the market. Exactly. So you start having a, um, gosh, what's her name? Um, uh, Maria Sharapova type situation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, you know, there was, oh, she's been cheating all along. Like, uh, no, that thing just got listed back in January. Right, okay. exactly. So that's very recent, even though she's that, been that using it for like 10 years. You know? That situation was ridiculous because she's taking it for a health reason. Exactly. A legitimate health issue reason. And it was only banned at the beginning of the year where she was tested for, and she just wasn't aware of that, and then she got pinched for that. Come on. She wasn't – clearly she wasn't taking it for some per- – it's only going to – now, there are performance-enhancing aspects of what she took. I forget the name of it. But only for healthy people who don't have the issue she has. Right. So in her particular case, it's just going to even things out for her so that it's an even playing field for her and her opponents – for someone who's already healthy who took it, then it could give somewhat of a competitive edge. Right. So anyway, that, that was just a witch hunt because she's a big name. Right. And they, they wanted to make an example out of someone and blow it out of proportion. And, and, I think and make themselves look good when usually they probably they, they turn a blind eye to this, to, you know, because it's money. They want these big names to continue to make money for them. But they want, you know, all eyes are on them. We've talked about this in other episodes. Like every right. now and then they got to have their scapegoat to say, see, we're doing something. You know, we're not just turning our bl- turning a blind eye to this stuff. Right, I think I think after Lance Armstrong, <laughs> there, there's a little bit of paranoia now. Right. Where it's like anyone gets popped or anything. It's like you know, you throw the whole book at them <laughs> right. as a way to protect your own ass because he got away with stuff for so long. Not only does that show that he's a good liar, but these governing bodies it makes them look like a bunch of incompetent idiots. And it wasn't just him; it was just like you know his team, and then the teams before that is just like, oh, so right. y'all just really incompetent. It's not just one guy. You've had like all these multiple winners and their entire teams. Like, oh, we're, we're, no, no, we were doing something. We didn't know. Like, come on, man. Well, but what was funny though is like back to John Jones mm-hmm. with the, the argument of maybe he took these things after a cycle. First of all, you're not going to take an estrogen blocker like letrozole after a cycle because the goal after a cycle of, of anabolics is to balance out your hormones, not drive estrogen into the ground. So that's the last thing you're going to take. You're going to take letrozole while you're on a cycle, not after a cycle. Clomid you will take after a cycle to rejuvenate your levels. But like I said, that's not the only purpose for it. It can also be used as a testosterone booster. Now, if John actually took anabolics, why didn't that ever show up on any USADA test? Right. Given how diligent they are with the testing, I mean, they caught him here with this. Why wouldn't they have caught him with something else? Yeah, exactly. Before, before, like maybe for the OSP fight. Because some were going, oh, this explains why he got so strong during the powerlifting. <laughs> it's like, no, dumb fuck. It's called good, weights. It's yeah, yeah, exactly. programming. <laughs> and like, especially when you're doing something that you don't normally do. Exactly. So, of course, those results are going to be you know, more readily like shown 
Because that's not what he normally did. You're a sponge sucking that in, man. Like, (laughs) you take someone who's never worked out before and they go to the gym, it's going to be Gainesville for like the next six months. (laughs) You know, like Brian Stan made a point of saying, man, John is such a good fighter. I was like, when I used to train with him, I would think, man, you should lift some weights. You should do some of these things. It would make such a big difference in your program. And he never did. So he said that when he saw John start training he's like yeah i'm not surprised that he's packing on so much size so quickly because he's such a genetically gifted guy that all he had to do was allocate some time and effort to that he had yeah. good coaching at the gym he went to he had nothing else to do you know but he was <laughs> <up> powerlifting <laughs> because he couldn't compete and then he got the iron bug like he started getting results and he really dedicated himself to it right and also the results he got while impressive are not beyond the scope of what can be achieved naturally by right. any was especially for a genetically gifted guy. I mean, John walks around at 230 and he was deadlifting 585 and squatting 500 pounds. We just had Eric Cressy on the show who weighed 165 and deadlifts 600 for reps and squats 540. Okay, yeah, so I mean, is, yeah, he's my height, you know. Yeah, like exactly. Eight Eric's, eight half, Eric's a natural lifter, and I don't think he would consider himself some genetically gifted guy. He's just a hard worker and a very smart coach. So right. he learned how to get strong. He's a very good, very good at programming, not only for others, but for clearly for himself as well. So, I mean, back to John, it's not like those numbers are so ridiculous. Like, he's breaking powerlifting records for his weight class. You know, that right. he wouldn't even place in the top 100 if he competed with those numbers in his weight class. So, they're not, so the average person who can't even get off the couch couldn't deadlift 100 pounds to save their life. Yeah, sure, it looks like all the weight in the world. But for someone who's a genetically gifted athlete who dedicated some time to something he's never done before – it's certainly within the realm of possibility. <clears throat> so anyway, I doubt he was taking a bunch of anabolics is where I'm going to improve his powerlifting numbers. Right. Now, it's possible that there's more tests out there that haven't come back yet. Like uh, Chael Sonnen said that when he got popped for HCG, and I think he might have been taking Clomid too, he said he was worried because he knew there were other tests out there that hadn't come back for other stuff he was taking. And he was very honest about this on, I think, his show and also Joe Rogan's podcast. So it's possible that uh, <laughs> there's two other tests out there that they come back. And if that happens, it's over. Man. It's done. Oh, it's over. <laughs> it's over. No one's going to believe, oh, well, I think it was another tainted supplement I took. It's like, well, look, but you have the worst luck in the world <laughs> with supplements because everything you take is fucking tainted. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, like I said, I hope it's a tainted product and I hope we see John back in action soon because – I mean, I was really pissed off that he didn't make that fight, man. And you know what? I couldn't be pissed off for too long because there were so many horrendous things happening that week that were much more, much bigger, much more, yeah, much worse than a fighter missing a UFC. That obviously it wasn't something that I focused on for too long. But for the night that I found out it happened, I was pretty pissed off, man, because I really wanted to see that rematch, and I'm sure a lot of other people did too. Actually, with all the other stuff that was going on, that was a welcome distraction to be pissed off about. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) You know, it's It's, like it's like like a luxury distraction. Yeah, exactly. It's a luxury. Off. Thank you for pissing me off about this. Okay, <laughs> yeah, exactly. at least no one died. Okay, yeah. <laughs> you know, so right? You know? Right. So, <laughs> so man, yeah. it's just uh, it's just a crazy world we're in right now. Yeah, and uh, it's it's really interesting because I, I sent over that clip with. Uh, actually, you know what? We can we can talk. We can save that for another episode, man. Uh, yeah. We don't we don't need to go on another tangent now. Yeah, that right there won't be a short discussion. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. It'd be like another hour of us talking about exactly. that. We'll talk about that further down the line. So anyway, folks, that was some bonus material for you guys who are curious about this whole John Jones situation. And maybe you're curious about the substances he took, and that's just a introduction to what they're used for and what they're all about. Don't send me a bunch of emails on where to get the
the stuff. All right. Not, <laughs> because it, not once did I recommend any of this stuff. In fact, any, if any of you that are thinking about Clomid, I'm hoping that I gave you some concern to do some more due diligence before you just jump on stuff. Right. And, and don't don't email Mike and say, hey, man, can you get it for me? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. That's definitely not going to happen. Oh, I'm not going to break the law for you. I'm not even going to tell you how to break the law. <laughs> You're going to have to go research that on your own. And there's our disclaimer there. <laughs> <laughs> All right, folks. So support the show. Use that coupon code LLA. Go to MikeMahler.com, NewWarriorTraining.com. Get 10% off. Go load up on some great nutrition supplements that you're not going to pop hot for. <laughs> but again, if you're, a pre- if you're a professional athlete still, you know, be a little bit concerned. I'm not saying that any of my stuff is tainted. It definitely isn't, but you know, it's, it's, there's no real way to be 100% foolproof with anything in life. So it's just right. you have to take it upon yourself to do whatever you need to do to, to ensure safety for you. There you go. And then head over to patreon.com slash LLA podcast. Become a monthly supporter of the show. And here's the thing. This little bonus that we had right here after speaking with Eric this this pays off well. Just giving you guys a hint, a big hint, <laughs> yeah, hint exactly. that you know those you know supporting like they do on Patreon are doing these bonus episodes, bonus parts of the show become like it becomes just that a bonus, a bonus. So these type of discussions, these type of topics and things like that, yeah, they'll they'll pay off. They'll they're they're gonna pay uh, off. There there's some intricacies with moving to a pay model that we had to work out. Yeah, we've had we've had some great discussions on it. And I think we've come to a model that's gonna be it's gonna be everyone's gonna be happy about this model, model including us. Yeah, the only people that aren't gonna be happy are people that we don't care if they're happy or not. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> your happiness is not something we're concerned about because you don't support us. So I mean, anyway, we come to we we'll we'll get into this on a in an episode down the line as we yeah. get closer to transitioning to this model. Exactly. All right, folks. And then as Mike mentioned earlier, you know, head over to Stitcher and iTunes, man. Leave that review. You just listed the episode. Now you can go leave that review right now. Exactly. There you, go. you can do that right now. No, like right now. What are you waiting? For? <laughs> get off your ass. Come on. Why are you still listening? Time. Go. <laughs> All right, folks. Let's go wrap it up for this week. Catch you on the next episode. Take care, everybody. Take care, everyone. Bye.